Hello, fellow dirt bikers and friends. Welcome to the Desert Dirt Biker Podcast, co-hosted by me, Corndog, and my good buddy, Eric. We want to thank you for joining us on this podcast. On the Desert Dirt Biker Podcast, we talk dirt bikes. <laughs> yes, dirt bikes. We talk about our experiences, different races, different organizations, bikes, gear, and always try to get a fun and exciting guest to join in with us. Now, grab a drink, kick your feet up, lean back, hold on, because here we go. Here's Corndog and Eric. Hey guys, this is Corndog here and my co-host Eric. How you doing, Eric? Doing good. All right, welcome to episode number four, April 29th, 2020. Uh, If you need to get out and... uh, Take a listen to us or send us an email. Drop us an email at thedesertdirtbiker at gmail.com. Anyway, we're excited. We're pretty stoked. We're sitting here with the world-famous Kellen Walsh. No. Is How's it Welch going, or Kellen? Walsh? It's Walsh. Walsh. Ah, it's going good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate All right. It. Glad you're here. So, um, I guess we just jump right into it. What's really cool is... He just pulled out his wallet and handed us both a bill from, where's it from? Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Saudi Arabia, when he was racing Dakar this Dakar last year. This year yeah. So, pretty cool. I got me something ten, to... Ten royals. How, how much is this worth? I need to look it up. I can't remember. It's like, <laughs> I don't think it's much. Is it like $10 million? <laughs> hopefully, I, hopefully it's not. Hopefully it's probably I, 50 cents. Hopefully I didn't give not you too much money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? All right. Well, cool. Um, Eric. What do you got? What what? Yeah, so we'll just jump in, Kellen. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got into desert racing, desert riding, and uh, kind of your your beginnings where you started. Uh, grew up in Alamo, so I grew up in the middle of nowhere in the desert. Uh, perfect place to uh, ride desert. Uh, I just grew up in my backyard. Um, my dad was never into racing or anything like that. Uh, just something in me. Something in me. I heard a story. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, just, I like motorcycles. I don't know what it was. My dad named me after two football players. My name's Kellen Lanier Winslow. So Kellen Winslow, or Kellen, my name's Kellen Lanier Walsh. My dad named me after Kellen Winslow and uh, Willie Lanier. And so I was named after two football players. He coached high school football and was a fireman. But uh, I just loved motorcycles. I don't know what it was from day one. Cool. So the story I heard from Del Wallace, Wally, <laughs> back when you were a little Boy Scout, a Weebelow, he called it, which anybody that was in Boy Scouts knows what a Weebelow is. I, I was a Weebelow once. Tell us about that. What, what, what was the influence Del had on you? To be honest with you, Del's, I mean, I attribute a lot to Del's just getting me into the sport. Like I said, my dad really didn't know anything about motorcycles or even know really what a motorcycle was, to be honest, but... Uh, there's a few people there at Alamo that had motorcycles, and I just, I, anything that had to do with motorcycles, I just gravitated to it. And I remember just looking at motorcycles, and just, we'd go to Nephi, Utah for like the summer, and they had a Honda shop. And that was like the highlight of my summer was to go up to that Honda shop and just be able to see a dirt bike in person. It was just amazing. Uh, Del Wallace moved into town, and I think I had, I'd finally gotten, my grandpa had, uh, you remember the Fat Cat motorcycles? The Yamaha yeah. Fat Cats. Like the motorcycles <laughs> yeah. that had like the four-wheeler tires on them. Yep. Yeah. That was my first bike was a Yamaha Fat Cat 80. Really? And I think I got that when I was eight. And uh, 
just rode that around for a while. But I think Dell had moved into Alamo right when I got a KX80 or right close to it. And Dell basically showed me, I think he's the one who took me like, on my first ride. Dell helped me change an air filler for the first time. You know how to do all that stuff. And so Dell kind of actually got me into it. How of old were you? I think I got the KX80 and then a couple weeks or like a month or two after that, I raced, I think it was the Caliandi, Moran Caliandi uh, Desert Race. That's what I was going to ask. What was your first race and where and when and yeah. how old were you? I was 10 years old, just turned 10 on a KX80 and raced uh, Caliandi Grand Prix. I think maybe it wasn't the Grand Prix, it was the, just the desert race. Is it the Ground Shakers? Yeah, yeah, 4th of July. <laughs> I remember... Uh, you know Brad Loveday from Alamo. Brad Loveday's his father, his father-in-law videotaped him. Oh wow! And we bought one of the videotapes, and it had me like I crashed right in front of the guy. And he always said, "Oh, there's number fifty-six J." So that was my number fifty-six J. Eighties, my first race. That's cool. Watched cool. that yeah. videotape probably ten million times of the big bikes and everything. Well, awesome. So let's. Talk so so. Your first race was a Moran race, yep. and then you kind of came up through through Moran racing Moran. Was that your the main series that you came up through? Yeah, just doing some local races. Obviously, growing up here in Nevada, local races, and Dale, I think, is the one that helped me as well. But a couple guys in Alamo raced some local Moran race desert races. So that's. I think I did Kelly Andy. We waited a little bit and did one or two more, and then um, did a couple more. Uh, and started to be successful. I don't know. Started getting close. I remember me and uh, I think it was a kid. F- you remember uh, Robert Marshall from Searchlight? Robert Marshall and I mm-hmm. were on cakes, or both on 80s. I think he's a little older than me, a year or two older than me, but we were 80 novices and we ended up with overall the 80s a lot of the time, one year. I mean, it was like one, one guy named Monty Monagu. He'd, if he showed up, he would probably win and race the 80 expert, but I think we were 80 novices and we didn't bump up to like the end of the year and we were overall in the 80 class of the novices. I'm bringing up some old names I haven't heard in a while. It's funny yeah. because like I didn't yeah. even think about it, but now I'm just starting to talk about it and the names are popping up. You know, like that 56J and then, yeah, yeah. Monty, I remember Monty Montague and it's kind of funny how that stuff just kind of pops back into your mind, you know what I mean? That was, that was my life there for a little while, so yeah. Oh, yeah. So then at what point did your racing career kind of get serious with, you know, starting to win classes and... and... Yeah, I remember me and my mom and dad have a talk because uh, I think it was that, a couple years after that, I lost the ADCC championship and we didn't hit, we didn't do any of the Sunday races. And that was like a big deal because we're pretty religious being LDS and my mom's like, no, nah, we're not racing on Sunday, you just, you don't do that on Sunday. Um... But that was kind of after that, you were like, okay, I could have won the championship, we raced all the races, uh, we're smoking everybody, you know what I mean? And I think we kind of, at that point, were like, all right, well, if we're going to do this kind of serious, then I don't know if you want to say you justify it. <laughs> it's not really <laughs> like a job, because I don't think at that point I ever thought it as of a job, but we're like, uh, and so we finally, uh, that year, I can't remember what year it was, but we decided to hit all the races, and that's when I won the, won the championship. But that was kind of like a... That was like a big step. Yeah, yeah like a transition point yeah, of, like, okay, we're going to get serious with this and yeah. try and take it to the next level. So that was your first dirt bike championship. 
Yeah, I think it was Moran 80, 80 championship. I can't remember if Robert did do all the races one year or got hurt or something, but it was that year. I think it was the first year we both jumped up to expert. And uh, and then he got he got turned 16, I think, and so I saw two more years, I think, or something. And I remember, not to sound conceited or anything like that, but I remember, I think I won every race that I entered on an 80. And then nice. uh, I think I went quite easy. And then... Uh, we had Best in Desert. Best in Desert had a full motorcycle series as well. And I remember, I think I won that Best in Desert ADCC championship as well. And, and then they had a Utah, Nevada, Moran, USRA Battle of the Borders. It was actually quite fun. And they had a kid that won like the 80s championship a couple times too. And everyone's like, oh, you can have your, you can have your cut, work cut out for you this time. And Chris Butterfield, I remember his name. Chris Butterfield was their big champion from USRA. It was kind of like a big deal in Nevada yeah, against Utah. Yeah. And I remember I ended up winning that championship as well. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I had no idea that you yeah, did that one. I think, uh, I don't know, it was, it was fun. That was really fun, like, fun times. Like, and to be honest with you, I guess, like, you asked me how when it started to get serious. It kind of started, I remember going to a Bass and Desert Laughlin race, and I remember seeing, like, two or three Cows Hockey Team Green Box fans, and I saw Danny Hamill, Ty Davis, and Larry Rosso, and I was like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> that's what I want to do. And so that's what I... I didn't know, like, I told you my dad didn't know anything, like, a story, like, one time I was playing high school basketball, and I was, uh, it was I think I was 80, and I was still, it might have been one of those years, and I was like, Dad, I need you to change my oil before the race, because I'm not going to have time for the basketball game. Well, we found out that race, that you can go 13 miles on a KX80 with no oil in it, because <laughs> you changed the oil and never put any oil in, which was, actually, it worked out good, because uh, they actually, he had to buy me buy because he ruined that one, so that was my, my first... So then you got new a new bike, bike out of Yeah. Nice. And before that. And my mom and dad are always good. Like they did like I say, they didn't really know anything about racing, but they made me work for everything, you know what I mean? To them, I remember pulling weeds and working my butt off one summer to try and get an FMF pipe for my KX eighty, you know what I mean? Like, I wasn't <laughs> gonna pay it's like hundred and fifty bucks for an FMF pipe. Are you insane? I'm not gonna pay hundred and fifty bucks. You know what I mean? They're used to Your bike has one on it. Yeah, football <laughs> right. and basketball. And, and stuff. at that age as a young young boy, I remember uh, same, just working for every little part that that i needed just to get those parts that we wanted or yeah. get to the next race and i still have one of my first jerseys uh it's hanging up on my wall i found it and it was some little cheap white like a uh, jersey kind of shirt type material and there's this gel stuff that i wrote like it was just i have homemade <laughs> jersey because my mom and dad were gonna buy like a jersey for like 30 dollars like are you kidding me right you're gonna buy this yeah. for 10 dollars and you can put your i put Walsh on the back had like KX on the back or something like that. And it glows in the dark to this day. It still glows in the dark, that gel stuff. But, yeah, you uh, need to frame that. Don't ever get rid of that. That's that's awesome. That's but they made me work yeah. for it. And when I started making it serious, I, like, I, I really did kind of take it serious. Like when I saw those Kawasaki, I was like, this is what I want to do. And I didn't really know if I could at that point, but this is what I want to do. And I spent, I work hard at it. I mean, that's every minute of my time was in my shop. My dad didn't know how to do anything to a bike, so I was changing my own tires thanks to guys like Del Wallace and Mike Strong and Brad Loveday and Alamo who helped helped me quite a bit. So very cool. Well, so what at what point did you start start getting support or getting rides, people looking at you, that kind when of thing? When did you start branching out from Moran? And we, we mentioned Moran a lot because that's where we came from. It's where you've come from. Our last week's guest, Joe Amy, that's where he came from. W- when did you start getting recognition bigger 
than Moran or moving moving to bigger things. Well, I think uh, when I was on my eighty, and I and I started taking it serious. Like I would I, I would work out every day. I go jogging. We have a water tower there in Alamo. I'd run that hill every every day. It was like three point two miles from my house. I'd run the hill, run up to the water tower, back down, and jog back to my house. I had a whole routine, and I I really did take it serious. Like everything I did evolved around motorcycles and stuff. Um, but I think. Uh, I remember my first sponsor and where I finally got free product was Shubaki Chains. Do you remember Shubaki Chains? Oof. <laughs> yeah, they make chains. It was back in the day. Wow. And I think uh, Tracy Godfrey called me. He was a guy. Roosters. Remember the Roosters Club? Uh-huh. He was Corey president. Ayers yeah, and yeah. all them. Uh, Tracy Godfrey helped me a ton. Um, but he called me and said, hey, I got your, your first sponsor, Shubaki Chains. And this is the guy's number and you get three chains but that was on an 80 and so we big won time few, <laughs> won a few championships on an 80 uh, and then I think one year I tried doing the 80 and the 125 so I raced the 80 race and the 125 so I raced I think it was a European scrambles in Nelson Hills gambler's race hmm. and it was the first race of the year and I raced an 80 won the 80 classes and it was like my first race of the, on a 125 and Tracy Godfrey helped me get a YZ 125 and I signed up in the novice class, and I remember a guy named Danny Cooper. Danny Cooper showed up to the race, and he had this no-lane box band, and he was the number one plate. And I'm like, oh, wow. I remember that first race as a, in a YZ125 in the novice class. I you know, catch all the amateurs, passing them, cut all the experts, and then I passed Danny Cooper. And then we're like, oh, yeah, I passed the one plate. And I think I ended up winning uh, the one plate in the, white, in the 125 class that year. That first, year we, uh, first race, I raced novice, and then wow. won the experts. So we just jumped up to the expert class and won all those races. So. At that point is when you had guys like uh, Elliot Fisher, uh, who I still keep in contact with. He, he, remember Vegas Power Sports? You ever hear that? He gets mm-hmm. shot. Mm-hmm. Fish helped me a ton. Just good guys like him and Tracy Godfrey. Um, they helped me. And that's when I started getting help from people. And then Tracy Godfrey had put together, he said he, got, he had gotten some money for a team from Texaco Haviland, put together like a Yamaha support ride, and uh, did the Yamaha and won the best desert championship on a 125, won the Marantz championship. And then we'd also won another best desert championship in the, I think it was Nate Pearson and myself. And Tracy Godfrey got a support ride from Husqvarna. It was mm-hmm. 1999. And Husky's making a big push. I don't know if you remember uh, Steve Lampson from mm-hmm. Supercross. Husqvarna mm-hmm. sponsored mm-hmm. team. They had a full Supercross team. Yeah. And Husky's making a big push again. And they tried to have an off-road team. And we got support from them. And I don't think they really thought that we were going to do much. And so they gave some money for like a championship bonus for Best in Desert. and gave some money for some race wins. And we won that champ. That, that, the 1999 Husky 125 was actually a really good bike. Hmm. The 125 was fast. Um, I remember Nate Pearson and I teamed up. And Nate was quick. Yeah. Real quick. Uh, he helped me a lot. And uh, I remember, I think, what, I can't remember what race was Best in Desert race. But we were on a 125 and I remember passing... Uh, Kirk Kaselli's on the KX125. He's always super fast, obviously, and he was kind of always the one to beat. But I remember passing Paul Krause on a Yamaha, like YZ426, up here in the trees, right here in Panaka. It's one of those days everything clicked. I remember passing Caselli, like he had problems or something. I passed him right over on the other side of Panaka, on the other side of the little silt beds, heading up the wash across the creek there. Uh, passed Caselli there. And I think we were running third overall and coming over Paw Rock back into the finish towards the Alamo. Uh, we broke a shock bolt, hmm. and Nate Pearson came to the pits riding on this 
fast, but I think we're running third overall on the Husky 125. That was wow. the best in the desert race? Yeah, best in the desert race. But anyway, I, long story short is that year uh, we won the championship, and so we got some money from our championship bonus, which I don't think they thought we were going to. And I was like, wow. Actually, we went from, like, riding and having to pay for, like, my own gear, having to pay for tires and gas to, like, this isn't my bike. Like, this isn't even my tires. I'm going to pay for these. And this isn't my gas. This is awesome. You know what I mean? And I can <laughs> so, get paid to do this? Yeah. And then I actually got some money that year, and I was like, wow, wow this is like a dream come true. Your dad me. didn't have to change your oil or <laughs> drain your oil? <laughs> you know, only thing I, he ever did after that was he helped me change a couple of moose tires. You didn't let him touch yeah, the bike? <laughs> hold, the, hold the tire iron. If it pulls up, hit you in the face, you just got to take it. <laughs> he was good for that. Uh, but uh, I mean, that was the first time, like, like wow, this is really cool, because... I mean, just, it's expensive, you know what I mean? And yeah. my mom and dad would make me pay for tires and gas, and they helped me with gas quite a bit, actually, but just paying for, I remember trying to save up because I wanted some MSR gear, like Mike LaRocco had. It took me a whole summer to get get some MSR gear, you know what I mean? Actual mm-hmm. gear, that stuff's expensive, so. Yeah, yeah. Went from, you know, having to do that to finally, you know, getting stuff and getting paid, so that was kind of, that Husky deal was kind of the, the turning point where I was, like, trying to make some money, actually. Cool. So, Moran, best in the desert. Uh, what else did you race? We kind of know, but hey, there, Sorry, there's more. I, I, I can go on forever. I guess if I start going off on a tent, you guys need to stop me. No, I it's all go good, man. We keep going. Everyone's going to get yeah. bored, but... Uh, I'm not bored at all. Yeah, so you didn't even ask your question of what else did you race. I mean, I remember on an 80, I tried to do some motocross, and we went to a couple of motocross races, like the... World Minis in Las mm-hmm. Vegas. I remember we signed mm-hmm. up, and I'd never done a motocross race, and I was on an 80, and we, we signed up in the uh, 80 beginner class, I guess, and we showed up, and I think in the first moto, I got second, and that's when we realized that motocross was completely different than Moran in the Desert Series, because my dad and another guy at the, uh, after that first moto guy, I didn't realize how serious it was, but then my dad was telling the story not too long ago, I guess he almost went to blows and they were calling us sandbaggers and we shouldn't even be in the beginner class. And <laughs> my dad's like, dude, I've never almost wanted, like almost got in a fight. And my, <laughs> it, was, it was bad. Like, like I didn't realize it was that bad, but my dad's like, these motocrossers are completely different. We're going back to Moran. Uh, but I, I did do motocross. I think that's where all the fast guys were. I think I watched Justin Buckley and Charles Pastrana in the eighties and I realized, dude, those guys are insane. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, different levels. So after that, I spent a lot of time doing moto, just a lot of motocross races, and I knew that was, I think that helped, helped me get quite a bit faster, you know what I mean? And then from there, we went obviously to the Heron Hounds, so we jumped to like uh, the Nationals. And a lot of the races kind of happened to be on the same time as Moran, so I actually didn't get a race, like a full Moran series as much, mm-hmm. as, much as I wanted to. I remember I raced quite a few on that Husky 125. I think I overalled one or two races, depending on if any of the Pearsons showed up or if like Matt Gosnell <laughs> showed up, I probably wasn't going to win. I think I overalled a couple of races on the 125. And then uh, we did the, the Heron Hounds motocross and uh, did a lot of others, like just moto training. I think that helped me get my quarter speed and stuff like that. So for some of our desert listeners, what what is it about, you know, riding motocross that helps in the desert? Like what was it that it fine-tuned it? I think the intensity. I don't know if you guys were. I remember Laughlin one year, and Mike Healy showed up, and I remember looking at Mike Healy. I think I was still on an eighty or a one twenty five. Or I remember Mike Healy showed up, and he had these LBZ 
bright green fuzzy pants on. <laughs> and he was lined up next to uh, Ty Davis and, and, and Larry, my heroes, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think we can forget that era, can't we? <laughs> <laughs> the, the LBZ. But Mike Lee showed up to Laughlin and smoked everybody. He was yeah. so quick. And it was his intensity, like sprint, yeah. you know, he was like a motocross, you know what I mean? And I think he got DQ'd that race. He came in, he had like a five minute lead and they DQ'd him because he missed a checkpoint or missed a corner or something. <laughs> but like, uh, and long story short, I ended up years later ended up training with Healy and he helped me like but I think it's your intensity corner speed um, and they're, they're, those guys are fast yeah. got kids on 80s and stuff that took it to a whole other level you know I thought I was fast on an then you go watch Justin Buckaloo and Pastrana and you're like those guys are doing the triples and everything holy cow those guys are on a totally different level you know what I mean so yeah. I think that's where motocross helped me a lot is in my speed and quickness and I think it's good to have both skill sets, you know what I mean? Yeah, I would agree. Work on both. I would agree. Working sections of like a motocross track can really, like you said, help with your intensity and, and cornering speed and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. No, yeah, I we'd go to California with Mike Healy and just work corners all day long. That's it. Just work corner speed. Yeah, faster cool. and faster, smoother and smoother, you know. So. so, best in the desert, Moran, some motocross, Aaron Hound. Uh, you did some Utah, USRA. Uh, you overalled one of them or something I remember reading or something, didn't you? Or Yeah, I think, I think we did, yeah. Did you ever do their whole series or no, just... never did. Went to the National Heron Hounds after that, kind of came became the big series. And then uh, kind of just going on, jumped to Kawasaki, you know, getting a support ride from Kawasaki Team Green and a guy named Jeff Price. He had a team together. And uh, they had a series. We were doing Best in Desert, Heron Hounds, and then they had a few uh, work series. We did all the works, a lot of the work series. Mm-hmm. Did the full work, work series. And there was one-off fun races that Kawasaki did, like uh, the Elsinore Grand Prix mm-hmm. and a few, uh, a few other like big six races like that that we always kind of did. I enjoyed the Elsinore Grand Prix. That was a fun. Corndog, have you ever done that one? I have the, not. Elsinore? No. I have not. Have you, Eric? No. No. That's Pretty fun. Back in the day, it was I remember lining up the Elsinore Grand Prix and uh, just the names that were next to me. All you see all the Supercross guys and everybody they know showing up for works down the road. But I mean, uh, I remember lining up to Troy Lee, right next to Troy Lee one year. Um, then of course you had Mike Kudrowski and all the Supercross guys that come and do that. It's kind of off season race, and you start right in downtown Elsinore on the asphalt and go out mm-hmm. on a big loop. It was a fun race. Cool. Did you ever do the Canalina Grand Prix? I never did. I, I was kind of. There's there was rumor that it was coming back this year, and that was one of my goals to go do it just to do it. Yeah, that's like an amazing. Now, race. who knows if it's gonna happen or not? Yeah. I think it's been ten years since it's happened, but that'd be pretty cool to do. Yeah, that'd be mm-hmm. an awesome race. Just just to say you did it. Yeah. So, <clears throat> that when you raced for Team Green, was that your first full ride sponsor? Did you get paid for that, or just they gave you everything you needed? uh, The Husky deal was like a full-on, like, uh, factory support deal. Like, Husky, that was pretty much close to fact. They were trying to make a big push out here. We went to the Husky 250. It wasn't quite as good as their 125. And then, to be honest, the Kawasaki thing started out, I just ended up buying a Cakes 250. And then Jeff Price had a Team Green support ride or whatever he kind of had. He had Shane Esposito. Uh, on his team and there's uh, Andy Grider was on there anyway he put together Team Green Ride and ended up kind of being part of that 
I kind of just tagged along with them at first. And then, like, uh, I remember Steve Hengenbell and the Fielders were on Team Green when I started kind of, you know, beating a few of those guys. And the team manager at that, na- that point was Reed Nordine. And mm-hmm. so uh, just kind of talked to Reed, and, and he, you know, you'd see him at the races and keep in touch, and they'd give you parts and stuff. And then uh, I think it was the middle of that year, uh, something happened with Andy Greider and Jeff Price, and I ended up getting, uh, they threw me on the KX500 in his spot. And like in the first uh, National Hair and Hound, I went on the KX500, and I got second overall to Destry. Nice. And so I think I kind of caught everyone's eye. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and so from that point uh, I raced a few other races for Team Green I remember it was kind of a tough decision at that point because I was turning 19 in, uh, in our church but a lot of people go on missions when they turn 19 so it was kind of a tough decision for me because like we just talked about I've been working towards everything and should you go on a mission should you not I had a girlfriend from high school and I was like oh, you know my, my mom and dad are like whatever I mean there's no really right or wrong answer it's just something you got to figure out between yourselves and so we're trying to figure out if go on a mission or just stay I have this team green ride and anyway I ended up talking to Reed Nordine and uh he's like hey do whatever you want to do as soon as you come back my bike's waiting for you I think that's really respectable at that time you know I mean he's like super marketable for us so he was super cool about the whole deal and I was like and then I thought about it for a while and I was like I need to go on a mission so I do remember, like, right before our mission, there was, like, three races that we had a full cowing deal. Uh, Shane Esposito and I raced uh, a Best in Desert race. Uh, actually, if you want to go, there was the Works race. I raced on a KX500. And uh, it was actually the right race in uh, Avi. It was Kurt Caselli's first race on a Works race. I think I was running second overall. Uh, I wasn't going to beat Kurt that day. Uh, he was flying that day. But it was Kurt and then me on the KX500 and then Mike Kudrowski. He was one of my childhood heroes, you know what I mean? Yeah. I had a VHS tape as a little kid. It was like the only motorcycles I could watch, and it was Mike Kudrowski and Mike LaRocco. At <laughs> I watched that thing probably 8 million times. Wore it out. But uh, anyway, I, I think I ran out of gas and ended up getting th- third or fourth or something that race. And then went to Elsinore, broke my hand, and then Shane and I were supposed to race that Vegas 200. That was going to be my last race before my mission. And uh, it was uh, Johnny Brash was the was the mechanic for Kawasaki. Like if he was the factory guy that always prepped the bikes and Johnny Brash prepped our KX500 for that race and he was like, man, I, I made it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. uh, Shane and I, Shane was supposed to start, he showed up that morning, he's like, nah, you're starting. I'm like, what? And I had just got my hand injected with cortisone because I broke it the week before. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, this is my last race before I go on my mission for two years. I'm gonna, we're gonna do good. And I remember there was all the heavy hitters at that point you had. Uh, I think Nick Pearson and Ty Davis were on a Yamaha. You had all the Honda guys, Johnny Campbell, Steve Hengeville. You had, um, that was actually the race that, remember Tim Staub? Tim Staub crashed really hard. They mm-hmm. got bad, yeah. bad headed during that race. But Tim yeah. Staub and, and Jonah Street, um, all the heavy hitters were there. and It rained a lot on the dry lake bed. I can't remember. It started two by two or something. Anyway, I got the, I was on the lead, I was leading and, Came in the end of the first lap, Shane took over, and we never lost the lead. And then overall in that race, and it was like my last race before I went on my mission. And I remember, like, just I told my dad at the end, I had blisters all over my hands, I had to hang on different because it was broken. I was like, I just, that's 100% right there. I just gave it everything I had to try and win that race. Wow. So that's we awesome, did. Dude. So that was, that was cool, but then, you know, I left for two years. <laughs> we took, I don't know if those guys, those people aren't familiar with what an LDS mission is, but basically, you just, you don't ride anything for two years, you don't, 
you don't watch TV, you don't, you know, you call your parents on Mother's Day and Christmas, and you go out and do the work. So where where'd yeah. you do your mission at? <laughs> That's a good question. I thought. Because I know Eric can speak Spanish and he's fluent. And yeah, I've been to somewhere as many times. I've been to Mexico and South America and I went to Cleveland. Already bought it. Cleveland. Kellen actually served with my brother. My brother went yeah. to Cleveland. Yeah, there. he was there. Yeah, the pretty last cool. Last couple of months before I left. That's right. You built it to the same mission I did. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Huh. So I didn't learn any. Didn't learn any language. <laughs> Man, if I knew Spanish, that could be yeah. so handy. It, Just as long as I've been great. everywhere. But, yeah. yep. um, so, Mexico. We, we talked a lot about Baja last episode. It's one of my new goals now. You race Baja, obviously. Tell us some Baja stories or tell, tell us how you got to Baja. Um, I got to Baja. Well, kind of. After that two-year mission, I came back, and Jeff Price had some Hondas. We did the Honda deal for a little bit. Honda wanted us to go to Mexico, obviously. Long story short, KTM did a, and Red Bull did a rider search. And they did it for Dakar. And basically, it's a Dakar Red Bull rider search. And uh, Scott Harden. And so it was kind of like a challenge? Like yeah. a come out and try out type yeah. thing? And so there was people that obviously didn't go because they were contracted. And I didn't have a contract. I had Jeff Price helping me with a Honda support ride and I went into it and long story short I won the the Red Bull Rider Challenge and so ended up getting like a KTM deal to do Baja and Dakar and so it was actually a pretty cool event that Red Bull put together they did something mm-hmm. similar this year with uh, three guys on side-by-sides for Dakar um, but anyway Jeff Price got super mad at us he threatened to kill me and my dad because I was going against my word um, we tried to, the Ron Heben, who was actually the head guy at Kawasaki, um, long story short, I ran into his mom on my mission, but he was like the, if your team manager, then he was like the head guy over off road. He was a KTM at that point. Ron Heben had called Jeff. I'm like, Hey, I got to switch over to KTM. We'll give you bikes. You can be like a satellite team. And it, it was ugly. That was actually like, I don't know, like racing. There's always a business side of it. Yeah. And that was like our first I don't know, black eye. Upsetter, yeah, yeah, bad was, business deal. That yeah, just my kinda... dad, it was, he'd call and threaten my parents, and it was, all he had to do was switch to KTM, and but he wanted to do things his way. He's a different guy. He's, he's got some, uh, he had some issues back then, some maybe chemical imbalances, and he had an attitude, but that's kind of where you see it kind of gets ugly. And, you know, it, made, it stretched my mom and dad out for a while. And we'd never signed a contract with him, but it was just word of mouth, and he threatened us because saying I was going against my word. But anyway, Long story short, I mean, you can't say no to something like that. I mean, Dakar is huge, you know. What yeah. I mean? And World he wanted stage. me to he wanted me to stay and do works works races on a Honda, which that wasn't gonna make a, too much money at the living, you know what I mean? And I was wanted to get married at that point and they needed income. So mm-hmm. anyway, signed that KTM deal, our first uh, that was the first time I'd been to Baja, but it was two thousand four. Um, they put KTM Red Bull put together a factory team of boss. Yeah, Scott Harden, who was our boss, who was going to Dakar. Yeah, myself, uh, Chris Blaze, who uh, was won the challenge as well. He got second, and he became a uh, guy to go to Dakar with me. And then you had Andy Grider as a backup rider. And so all four of us did the Baja 1000, which was a peninsula run in 2004. Hmm. So those guys had all kind of been to Baja before, and uh, I, I hadn't. It was my first kind of time. And 
it was eye opening. I enjoyed it. I loved Baja. It was, oh, you've been there, Eric. Yeah. There's nothing like yeah. it. The people get a ranch right next to the beaches, and uh, that was my first time in Baja. But we got second. We didn't. Johnny Campbell and those guys ended up winning that year, and we got second overall. Still haven't won the Baja Devils overall. Uh, hmm. But yeah, that was our first year, and it was a. Uh, Baja bit me though. Baja bit me hard a couple times. Yeah, you had a couple hard crashes down there, didn't you? Yeah. A couple years. Uh, So we did that together as a team. Then we went and did Dakar. Chris Blaze and Scott and I went and did Dakar, uh, which was, I mean, that could be a whole podcast just off that first Dakar. Well, (laughs) we'll get into that here in a minute because I want to (laughs) know. Just as a 21-year-old kid that really had no clue from Alamo, you know, threw us in there, which it was insane. But uh, after that... uh, we came back, we're going to do, KTM wants to do all this, Baja, Mexico races, and, dude, this, I could go on and on, but people are going to get bored, but, uh, just to make it quick, uh, I ended up, we were pre-running. All my, my injuries in Baja were all pre-running. Really? Yeah, never on race, which is actually kind of worse, because there's no helicopters or anything, but, oh, one year for San Felipe, we were pre-running, and my first time, and I just, I wasn't really prepared, it wasn't, I look back, you make a lot of changes, you know what I mean? But Mexico's no joke. You got to have a chase crew. And mm-hmm. I had my cousin with me who, he'd never been there. And anyway, I broke my I broke my femur and shattered my pelvis down to my Tommy wash. And wow. uh, there was a hotline, kind of like a line out of the wash a little bit. And I took the hotline. I ended up hitting a rock, so the same color as the sand. Hit a rock, went over the bars. The bike hit me in the back, uh, shattered my pe- uh, pelvis and my femur. I went... I went to move, and I went to move, and I could see my femur, you know what I mean, moving. Mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, it's not good. And then I went to try and slide over to the course because I could hear bikes going by me. Like, I heard my cousin go by. I heard a couple other people go by, and I'm like, Crap. I physically, yeah. like, the way my pelvis was shattered, like, I physically could not crawl or even scoot over to the main course. <sighs> so long story short, like, two hours later, my cousin went up to a gate, and I told him I'd wait for him there. He didn't see me, so he came back. I could hear him going back up and down the wash. I couldn't get over there. I was trying to, like, throw my... I'd hear somebody come by and try to throw, like, my chest protector in the air. And, so you were off the course and kind yeah, of... Yeah, I was on the... Like, there's, like, different lines. Eric, yeah, you've been down yeah. there. Like, in the sand washes, there's kind of different lines. Like, they yeah. call hot lines where, like, the bikes try to stay out of the loops. And it was all one of those hot lines out of the main wash. So, like, it doesn't have any people on it. Yeah. So long story short, like, two hours later, my cousin found me, and then he didn't know what to do. We sat there for a couple hours, finally got some buggy guys to help. It was raining. They couldn't get any helicopters. Uh, My cousin, who's Quinn, his plan was to, he was just going to lay next to me in Mexico and just cover us up with sand and we were going to die in Mexico. (laughs) 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 Uh, Like you were 20-something, 21 or two. Yeah, and he was... He's two years younger than me. Just just graduated high school. Yeah, we're clueless. Oh, boy. And this was pre-running. Pre-running. So... We didn't have sat phones. We didn't have yeah. anything. We were just totally unprepared. And and uh, guy who I still talk to every week uh, stopped and helped. His name is Butch Jensen. He owned the T Bird uh, restaurants there in Vegas. Hmm. Actually, I just raced with him a couple weeks ago. Super good guy. Hmm. He stopped and helped. Said he was from Vegas. And I remember him and a couple other people. My leg, I had nerve pain from the nerve going through my pelvis. I remember guys there stopping, just rubbing my leg and my feet because my my foot hurt so bad in that broken femur leg and. Uh, people stopped to help, but there's nothing. We didn't know how to get me out of there, like with a broken femur and pelvis. I mean, you can see your right. femur, you know. Oh, so, you're like, man, uh, do you put we're gonna put us on Butch's hood, like 
but I couldn't even, like, dude, it was so yeah. painful. I mean, I, even to move. But, like, eight hours later, uh, some Mexicans came in the truck, some locals that I think Andy Grider had helped get. They ended up getting me in the back of a truck, and I rode, which Matomi is still a long ways from some And people. rough. And rough, yeah. Yeah. yeah no. We rode on the course in the back of that truck, and I could just, oh. I thought it was my femur I could feel, but it ended up being my pelvis. My yeah. pelvis just grinding. Grinding. We'd go, yeah. like, we'd go half a mile, and I'd just throw up. And then we keep going and uh, throw up some more. It's like the worst, worst pain ever. So finally, I think three hours after that, which we're 12 hours into this whole, whole ordeal, we get to San Felipe. Wow. And uh, long story short, mm-hmm. get there and get in the local ambulance, which was almost worse than the truck. And, the, and they try to take me to Calexico. And I remember that that's telling the driver, slow down. And he's just on the gas, off the gas. And I'm sick and puking. And uh, yeah, I was, I was ready to end it all. <laughs> all right. But, uh, Finally got to Plexico, got across the border, saw my mom and dad who met me there, and then I flew to Vegas for surgery. So that was the first of my Mexico (laughs) (laughs) injuries. But yeah. I don't even, I can't even. So if you go to Mexico, corn dog, make sure you're prepared, which if Eric goes, he's, it's all, everyone's pretty prepared now with the spot trackers, sat phones and everything. But it was just, the way things lined up, it was a bad day. There were storms, like couldn't get a helicopter, I remember. Butch was trying to call the Herbs, trying to get the helicopter to fly. No one was flying that day. And yeah. It was a long day in Mexico. <laughs> yeah. My last trip down there, we almost spent the night in the desert due to a broken bike. Yeah. 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 God, that's one big thing. Is, oh, it always seems like stuff happens when you're pre running. You just got to be prepared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, did you go back to Baja after? Yeah, I did. So, how did you feel? I mean, <sighs> I mean were, were, were you scared? No, I wasn't scared of Baja, but that changed, to be honest with you, like, looking back at my career, that kind of changed my perspective. That was, like, my first big, like, I remember on that KX500, I never once thought about checking it up, like, you know what I mean? I was just, oh, I need to go faster here, I go faster here, I just was pinned. After that, uh, and this is probably a lesson for everybody, but after, I think it was, it was three months, almost to the day after that, I raced the Nevada 1000. Mm-hmm. So KTM was flying their big rally guy over, his name was Mark Coma. Mm-hmm. Super great guy, mm-hmm. but Mark came over and lived with me for a couple of weeks, and we were going to race the Baja 1000. And, and I didn't want to say no. I mean, race on a factory right. KTM. All the KTM guys from the rally team on the court of the states are excited about it. They're bringing Mark Coma, who's a Dakar winner, and I'm going to race with him. Like, you're going to say no? Right. Uh, right. I'll, yeah, I'll be ready. <laughs> and so we did. We raced, but uh, I, I obviously came back too early, and I was. Gun shy. Is that what you want me to call it? Mm-hmm. I, right. I yeah. remember being on that factory. It was a, it was a factory KTM. It was like a six six ninety, like in an MX frame. Dude, that motor was so fast, so fast. They get to one hundred sixty miles an hour, so quick. But I remember a couple times like hitting rocks. You know how it is. It was the Nevada one thousand. So we're up there by Tonopah. Right. I remember hitting hitting a rock and like kicking my rear end up. Like, oh, I could just wrecked again. <laughs> just checking up and like it, it ran through my head after that and it kind of changed the way obviously I came back too early but it kind of changed the way I, I, I thought about like the best in the desert and the wide open stuff so but yeah. so continuing on though KTM they had a whole we had a whole schedule that was like the full deal so we had the I did the Nevada 1000 with Marcoma and then uh, we were supposed to do the rest of the uh, score races and then we were doing Dakar we had a three year deal for Dakar so uh, so that's how you got to Dakar's by being in Baja with with them. Yeah, it, it was actually the Dakar program. They were using uh, Baja as like the training preparation for Dakar. It was 
it was only like a, the Dakar was the main deal. Red Bull wanted an American, you know what I mean, to be, be part of it. And you get on the stage and win Dakar. So then, and it was it was a good deal. It was full, like I said, full deal. We were getting a little bit of salary and getting money, and so it was a good deal. But uh, long story short, so we did go to Mexico, and uh, we were pre-running for the Bar One Thousand. There's actually two stories to this, but <laughs> um, we were pre-running, and they had this had this bike. It was called the Death Swapper. Like KTM tried to build like a hand-built. It's a mix between an MX bike and a Dakar bike, and that was kind of what we used for Baja, but it did not like the whoops. So mm-hmm. we were down there testing in Mexico on Powerline Road, the whoops. It's not fun just trying to, okay, we need to get it to swap, you know what I mean? We need to figure out why it's swapping. Right. So you're sitting on there all day, like on the edge, like trying to, and that was actually the day that Andy Grider, and Andy Grider's like, I'm done, I'm not racing this bike in Baja. And Chris Blaze and I ended up deciding to solo the Baja 1000 on those bikes, but... That day I ended up doing like a swap. We call it death swapper. You had like you had one swap, two swaps, and then you just had to let the bike go because <laughs> it was gonna be all bad from there. Oh, wow. um, but anyway, I got into a little swap thing, and my feet kind of came off the pegs, and I ended up hitting uh, hitting my my uh, what, what's the show rated? <laughs> I ended up hitting one of my my testicles on the freaking tank. <laughs> Your boys. Uh, yeah, one of my boys on the team you might have to edit that. <laughs> we're good. I don't know what we're... That's anyway, long story short, I hit that and uh, didn't know it at the time, but that thing swelled up. We went home from that test session. A day later, I think it was the size of a, you know, like a tennis ball. Mm. Day two, I was about ready to end. I just wanted to... It was worse than my femur. Ooh. And, uh, uh, like, seriously, I could, only, I could sit on the... Like, lay on the floor with my feet up on a couch, and that was, like, the only comfortable position I could get into. And uh, so, day three, uh, I was I was done. We went to the ER. The ER guy said, "Nah, it's just an infection. Probably get here some antibiotics." And then later that night, I'm like, I- "I'm, I don't want to live anymore. <laughs> I'm like this is like the worst pain I've ever been in." Wow. And then I ended up going to the urologist in St. George. That next morning, my aunt got me in. And she's like, "Just go to the urologist," and he's like. I got things dead. You had testicular torsion. That should have been the first thing you, ch- you checked for, the ER doctor checked for. So we got to take that guy out. So that was wow. my other Mexican. One of my other Mexican. Women. I lost my boy. One of my boys down there. <laughs> <laughs> my boys down there. That was before all my kids. That's a lot of sacrifice, man. <laughs> yeah. Do you look Do you look back on that bike and say, what were we thinking? I mean, or you, you know, like just, um, Brett Leaf said it, and he's Brett Leaf uh, was a suspension guy, and. and He's worked for all the factory teams, all Supercross teams. He helped Ricky Carmichael, James Stewart. He's like, this is probably like the most true works bike I've ever seen. Like this bike is truly a works hand built bike. They built four of them and sent them over. I had one here in Alamo and was riding on it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it was a, it was an awesome bike, but we just, I don't know. You get, when you, you're making money and you know what I mean? It's like your job. You just do kind of you know we just needed to be smarter right. we needed to be smarter and it, it was an amazing bike and I think just uh, years later uh, Dave Pearson and Cyril Dupre kind of had a mixed version of it and they ended up racing the Baja and I think it was a lot better just the frame and everything the way that geometry was that thing just did not like the loops hmm. whereas like the Honda guys on the XR650 just that thing was good in the loops you know like a tractor yeah, yeah that thing was straight yeah. um, but then later that year Chris and I were when we were soloing I think I crashed and got a concussion and broke my shoulder and so I missed that car which is the second year of my contract Andy Grider went for me 
And then the next year after that, I crashed in pre-running again and missed my other Dakar contract. So Baja kind of bit me those years on the bike. Mm-hmm. Wow. So um, we want to hear about Dakar, obviously, and then where you're at from now. But I think we're going to take a little break. And, uh, <laughs> I told you. I could talk forever. We didn't just got to stop. No, this, this, this is great. No, you I, guys I, have to go back and edit this and just cut all that stuff out. This, this, this is great. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm intrigued. You question, man. You got any questions? I'm full of tension. Anyways, we're going to go pay some bills, take a little break, maybe have some pie. We'll talk to you in a bit. The Desert Dirt Biker Podcast is excited to announce our first sponsor, Throw Me a Bone Antler Dog Chews. For 10% off, use this code, the Desert Dirt Biker at web address www.theantlerchew.com. Here's a message from Throw Me a Bone. We source only the freshest antler that contains the highest amount of nutrients and minerals that dogs need. In fact, antler contain the top nine nutrients and minerals that dogs need to stay healthy, and it's all done by nature. Our antlers are naturally shed by deer and elk every spring. We hand select and hand cut every antler to maintain freshness and quality. Our antlers are guaranteed not to splinter, go soggy, or stink up the house like other top chews on the market. We have also found that by giving the freshest antler, our chews last three to four weeks, in some cases longer. Give your dog something to do while in the pits or while you're out riding. All right, guys, tip of the show, sponsored by Throw Me a Bone. Uh, it's going to be on goggle prep and selection. So as you select your goggles and prep your goggles, make sure that you're planning for the riding conditions that you're going to be riding in. So whether you're going to be riding in rain, mud conditions, or dusty, um, bright, light conditions, where maybe you're racing into the sun, off the start of a race, or if you're going to be riding through the night in Baja, make sure that you're selecting the right goggles. Um, it's probably best to have a couple sets of goggles in the goggle garage, and uh, you're going to want to have clear lenses versus maybe mirrored lenses or tinted lenses, and then tear-off types. So there's a couple different options there with roll-offs versus tear-offs. Uh, a couple of the roll-off sets come with mud flaps, so those are good for muddy wet conditions have that mud flap to keep the water from getting behind your roll off um, the tear offs they have laminated versus non-laminated i personally prefer the laminated set because it sticks to your goggle lens and keeps dust from getting behind the lenses so um, try that and then uh, an old tip that that i learned back in the day was put a little vaseline or chapstick on your filter of your goggle, kind of like pre-oiling an air filter. It'll help keep hanging dust out of the inside of your goggles. And last, and ultimately, try to keep your goggles on at all costs. Um, super yeah. crucial, vision vision, and clear vision is important, and uh, safety. safety for sure. So try that out for next ride. All right, go check out Throw Me a Bone. Thank you. All right, guys, we're back. Um, we're having fun here. Hope you guys are enjoying the show. 
Uh, check us out on Facebook, Katie, Eric. Give us a like or a comment. Uh, let us know how the show's, how you're enjoying the show, how it's going. And share um, it. Share, share it. Share the heck out of it. Get it out there. Um, Instagram at the Desert Dirt Biker. Again, if you're an Instagrammer, check us out there. And send questions for the future shows to the Desert Dirt Biker at gmail.com. All right, guys. So we're going to jump back into where we left off with some Dakar rally stuff. So, Kellen, tell us how you ended up getting to to Dakar and what it was like for your first time, you know, over on the other side of the world. Yeah. Uh, 2005 was that first year. Chris Blaze, Scott Harden, and myself was the American effort from Red Bull KTM. And to be honest with you, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Just, and that might have been, <laughs> might have been good. Uh, I just knew that I was going to ride my dirt bike somewhere. I wasn't having to pay for it. It wasn't my tires. It wasn't my gas. And I was actually making a little bit of money. And and I was stoked to just go ride a motorcycle somewhere. Um, looking back on it, I mean, it's it, it, it's insane. I mean, the car is so huge. I mean, just not here in the states, but worldwide. I mean, it's. I mean, when it's it was in South America, yeah, like seven million people show up to watch. Wow. Yeah, and about ninety million people or whatever that watched on TV. It, it's huge, man. Which we had no clue to be honest. Uh, but it was, it was crazy. It was, I mean. Uh, <coughs> just so many experiences just an, it, it, for someone who's never been to Dakar we always say it's like the Baja 500 for like 14 days in a row I mean so people prep for the Baja 500 for a year you know what I mean and we're doing 14 or 15 days that race I think that year's 2005 was 17 days yeah extremely just, gnarly yeah and it, uh, it started in Barcelona Spain and I'd really never raced anywhere else besides the state so it was a definitely eye opener but we started in Barcelona went down through Spain uh, across the Strait of Gibraltar, we threw the bikes and everything on uh, a ferry. Your time stops, um, yeah, liaison they call it. Hmm. And then we went through Africa, uh, Morocco, Mauritania, Mali, Senegal, uh, down to the Sahara Desert. I mean, just crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> a little kid from from Alamo, Nevada, that just liked to ride <laughs> his dirt bikes. So. Have you ever seen dunes that big? No, there's just it's. Uh, there was one day uh, we were in the dunes. And you look a 360 all the way around you, and it was all you could see for dunes. And that we were there for 10 hours and never saw anything else. Wow. It, was, it was insane. How do you train for that? I mean, did, did your Moran or your Heron Hound experiences get you ready for that, or is that a whole different level? Not for sure. Like, northern Africa looks just like parts of Nevada. Like, you look at Prim, Nevada, and it looks just like northern Africa. Wow. So those stages, for sure, I mean, Nevada is a great place to train for Dakar obviously the sand dunes are there's nothing like it in the world to be honest with you the Sahara sand dunes are insane so uh couldn't really prepare for that and to be honest with you we didn't really prepare that we did the Baja 1000 2004 and then the Dakar was in January 2005 and that was really our only preparation we really went into it. we hadn't even we flew to Tunisia like a month before the race and we broke in our two race motors and that was the only time we'd seen the bike so we spent literally before the race started probably you know, half a day on the bike, then a day. So did KTM, you were on KTM at that time, right? Yeah. And so did KTM have other teams from other countries at the Dakar at that time? Yeah. And yeah. did you guys get, like, information or, or tips from them? Or was this just, like, the American team and you're going into this thing learning as you go? Um, we were kind of the American team. And, but KTM has their factory team. So KTM almost had like the, the Galois Z 
uh, they're like there was a lot of French guys, and then they had like their Spanish Repsol guys, which is Marcoma. Uh, so they kind of had their factory effort, and then we were part of that factory. So effort. you guys kind of pitted together with them. And yeah, we were under the yeah. whole KTM okay. banner. So, cool. <clears throat> um, I think they kind of thought we were just young. Like most of those guys are experienced, little older guys who done professional motorcycle career, and then they kind of move on to Dakar. That was kind of a European way. But interesting stories. I remember day three. Uh, day four, I was running, I was running third overall for a little bit, and then we just got into Africa. There were just short stages in Europe, in which I did kind of decent in those, so I was running like third overall. And then day three or four in Africa, his name's Fabrizio Mioni, and I didn't realize it at the time, but he was like the Michael Jordan in France. So like mm. in, in Europe, they have soccer, and then there's racing. Like racing is huge. Wow. And... Fabrizio was like the Michael Jordan. He'd won Dakar, I can't remember how many times, like five or six times. He's an older guy, bigger guy, and he was like the man. <laughs> I remember in Africa, I can't remember what stage it was, but anyway, I didn't start too far behind him, and I caught him and passed him, which was, I was young and dumb, I mean, looking back on it. Passed him, ended up, Jordi Villadomes crashed in front of me, ended up breaking his femur and stuff, and uh, I hit the same bump he did. It was kind of weird, I was like looking at him, and I didn't even look down and see like the washout that he hit, and it kind of it kicked me a little bit. Uh, I didn't break anything like that, so I continued on. But anyway, that night at the KTM pit, uh, basically I got my butt reamed, and it and for good reason. I mean, if you take a step back and look at the big picture, here I'm a young kid, it's my first Dakar. I have a chance to follow the guy who's won it. He's like literally like the Dakar king, and I had a chance to follow him and learn from him, and well, I just pass him. You know, and I kind of see why he was mad. But yeah, there was definitely, you don't do that, you know what I mean? And wow. there's team orders. I mean, let's be honest, uh, Fabrizio had his water boy, who was basically, uh, I think it was John Brucey that year. Who John Brucey and I are still good friends. I see him at the rallies. He navigates for people. But he was his water boy. The water boy doesn't pass Fabrizio. He helps him out, you know what I mean? And we didn't really understand that. We didn't have, like, team orders as USA that year or anything like that. So uh, crazy part of that story is I think it was – the next day or the day after uh, Fabrizio crashed, uh, I came up on him. He was ahead of me. It came up on him. The helicopter was already there, uh, but he ended up dying. Mm-hmm. In that race, in that, wow. that, that, that crash, wow. which was two days later. Um, wow. Basically, they think that uh, it was right after a fuel stop. So you at that time, I think our bikes carried almost 12 gallons, like 44 liters of fuel. Wow. So it's just a you. You go from riding a bike, and then all of a sudden you throw that much weight into it, it just handles different. And mm-hmm. it wasn't like in a crazy spot. It was like a wide open spot, and it had a little, like, a little bit of camel grass, had like a bump in it. I think he maybe hit the bump, and then he hit the road books, the, the fairing and everything, and then, yeah, he ended up dying that year, huh. that, that day. Mm-hmm. So That's pretty crazy. I, I, you know, lessons learned. I was young and dumb. And then uh, Joe Barker, who was our KTM team manager, kind of, he was cool about it, but like, hey, the KTM guys are pissed. What are you doing? You know, and... They're, they're right, you know what I mean? I should have learned from him. Anyway, that was, that was that first year. and I mean, like I said, you could go on and on about stories. I ended up blowing a motor, which was crazy. And, and you know, KTM probably doesn't want anybody to say it, but I ended up blowing a motor. You're only supposed to have two motors. It was my second motor already. And they ended up having a, a race truck, which is like the big T4 truck. And that truck happens to have an extra motor in it. That motor happens to have some of the... The, uh, you know, everything you need to match up to your other motor and ended up, we ended up changing the motor to the desert and that put me way down. And after that, I was just in the dust. But uh, we finished. 
and uh, Chris Blaze did good that year. I think he was ninth or tenth, or he was top ten close. So mm-hmm. Chris did great, and Scott Harden finished. I think he was seventeenth, and I was twenty second overall after the. Uh, I think I lost four or five hours, and we changed the boat. But, so a really hmm. good showing for America. That's yeah, like I think I think everyone thought that we were just young kids that we were never going to finish and have a chance. And the finish rate for Dakar is I don't know what it is, but I mean at that point there was at least two guys dying every year, and it was insane. Mm. Just so just to finish in itself, I think everyone was. I know I remember KTM, and then everyone was super excited. I won the last stage, and and there was a couple guys battling for the wheat, like the overall, like the podium, the last stage, and. Everyone thought that was two on it because they were going at it, and then I ended up winning. And KTM was just super happy, and so I think they were they were stoked after that. Cool. So you won a stage. Yeah, won the last stage, which it was a smaller stage, but I was, was that close your to first year at Dakar? Yeah, it's first year. Nice. So, here's a question we had in from a guest or from a a listener. How is how did it feel winning a stage at Dakar? What what went through your head when you? Here's an American young kid from the little town of Alamo, Nevada, wins a, a stage at Dakar. Um, I'd almost won. That was the last stage that Lake Rose I won. I almost won the stage. There was like a stage day number 10. And uh, anyway, it was like the we had a sandstorm the whole day. Like You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And me and a guy uh, named Giovanni Sala, he was from Italy, big guy, big buff guy he he'd done the car a bunch of times he was a enduro champion isd champion anyway him and i hooked up and i followed him for car ways but i started in the back there's kind of a whole strategy in the car i started to kind of in the back that day and i ended up catching up and then they ended up following him and we ended up moving to the front and so i was leading on time overall and that, that whole day was crazy there was uh we were supposed to get enough fuel and they weren't going to give us enough fuel to finish and i remember uh giovanni grabbed the fuel from the guy and said hey Give him fuel. Give him fuel. The guy's like, we can't give you any more fuel. He's like, we're not going to make it to the finish. They got in a big old fight. And he grabbed a can and dumped fuel for me. He's just super good guy. It's way, it's wow. the car like everyday survival. I mean, it's just, you can't really describe wow. it. But I mean, uh, literally after like 10 hours of racing, we finished it almost dark. And we'd been in the dunes the whole day. And it was just insane. But I crashed. After the fuel stop, I went to try and catch back up to uh, Giovanni. And uh, I came over a dune. And there was like a little, like a little uh, witch's eye or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I came over and I fell to the bottom. I crashed hard actually, kind of rung my bell really good, messed up my helmet, I hit it on the road book. And anyway, I lost, that was right towards the end, I lost time, I almost won that stage. But uh, anyway, I got to the finish and all the media's like, hey, how's it feel to win your first stage? I'm like, yeah, I don't think I won, I just lost <laughs> a couple of minutes back there. But anyway, uh, so it was just frustrating. The race was kind of frustrating because I thought I could have done better and the whole motor thing and I was stuck in the dust after that. So to finally win the last stage was just like, Awesome, you know, it just felt good. And uh, just to correct something, a little, little story. Uh, for some reason, when I got back, someone told me, oh, you're probably one of the first Americans to win Dakar. And anyway, it got, it kind of, you know, kind of rolled with that. And then I learned, um, interesting story, Chuck Stearns uh, from Southern California. He was actually the first American to win a stage in Dakar. I think it was 1985 Dakar. <laughs> he won six stages. Okay, so he, wow, was, he was wow. awesome, yeah. It, he was, his story is before, a couple years before that, he actually got crashed on his bike and got a blood transfusion. And it was kind of back then before they knew a lot about AIDS. And I guess he ended up, he didn't know it at the time. He raced that car, won six stages, was in the Morocco rally, which wasn't too many months later. 
uh, and got sick, was so weak he couldn't finish the race. I took him to the hospital, and a few months after that, he actually died, and they determined, I think it was from that blood transfusion. Wow. Yeah, that wow. same year. So that's so off to him. So he was the first American to win a stage, six stages that right. 1985, I think. So when we were kind of doing our homework on one of the sites we found on the Google, it said that you were the first American. And I guess maybe we should ask you, but thanks for correcting us. Yeah, and, no, uh, I'm not. Props I'm, to him. I, yeah, props to him. And uh, who knows, you know, it, maybe he could have been the first American to win to Cork. It sounded like he was really good. Uh, he was taken too early. Uh, Chris Blaze. Chris got on the podium, first American on the podium. Who knows what would have happened if he'd have been, uh, you know, Chris ended up getting paralyzed. Mm -hmm. uh, Chris was great was, riders. Was that the year you were there or that was before you went down with Chris? Chris's accident? Chris's accident was after. After, yeah. okay. Uh, Pre-running as well for Vegas to Reno. Uh, huh. And mm -hmm. he went the second year. I didn't go the second year. That's when I got hurt in Mexico. So uh, if Chris wouldn't have got, you know, you always say, what if, you know, I'm sure Chris would have done great. Maybe yeah. he would have. Caselli, Kirk Caselli's last couple, he, he killed was it. He won route. a couple stage. He was heading that route, uh, and he got taken too early. So, so you never know. So yeah. with not to take away from, from your history and and your accomplishments, but so Ricky Brabeck, just won the overall at Dakar. Can you put that into perspective? I mean, since you've been down there, you've seen it firsthand, how incredibly awesome that is. Uh, just like we're talking here, how many guys have tried, how many people tried, to, like we talked about, the car is just so huge, and it's such a, it's so many stars have to align to even get you there, <laughs> and then you even get through the first couple of days, and then let alone to try and win it, it's just almost, it's almost like impossible, you know what I mean, and so, to have Ricky be the first American, it's just, it's awesome, no. I mean, America, we finally, you know what I mean, we finally done it, we, we do have amazing riders. I mean, desert racers come from America are freaking awesome, you know what I mean? So, sure. like I said, those names that we just mentioned, I mean, there could have been any one of them. We had Jimmy Lewis who actually trains uh, Ricky and myself and and Andrew Short this year and and Danny My Laporte was one. He, he was not originally from America, but he's he won a stage from and uh, it's just so many people have tried before. It's so so hard, so difficult, maybe just to get there, let alone to, to win it. So, uh, hats off to Ricky. Such a good could just humble kids, yeah. just like us, man. He just wants to ride. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is cool. I'm getting yeah. to ride, and I'm not having to pay for it. So hats off to him. And uh, I, we trained a lot this summer, and and uh, he works hard, so he deserves it. Very cool. Yeah, we were all stoked that that happened. Uh, I think we were all following Dakar this year more than. Well, remember last year, Ricky almost. Ricky was, was leading. Close. Yeah, he had Ricky it was last leading. year. He had it. Yeah, I still have a picture right here on my phone. Me and, and Robbie Gordon pull up to his bike, and I'm like, what? He's leading. What is his bike yeah. doing here? And I saw his helmet there, so I knew he wasn't hurt. His helmet, I'm like, oh, I got Robbie, turn around. I got to take a picture just so I have this because I thought Ricky was going to win. So we turned around. We weren't in the, we weren't in the car class in it for a lead, so we, I got pictures yeah. of Ricky's bike sitting there. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. Yeah, the devastation. To have that chance. And you know then... what I mean? That was motivated. Lit a fire under him, and like I said, he worked his butt off, and he deserved it. That's awesome. cool. Yep. So I got a question, and it's kind of not bike-related. We talked a little bit about it last last week or last episode about Baja, the food. What's the food like over there in 
where Africa, where, where, and Dakar, I mean, I love Mexican food, I'll eat tacos every day of the week, Dakar was horrible, it's, I mean, it's, (laughs) French, it was no bueno, uh, I, I it have, really is horrible. It was horrible. And I'll give them some credit because we are in the middle of nowhere in Africa. They literally have to fly it in. Like, they literally were in the middle of nowhere. Like, I remember finally, like, on, like, day, I don't know, 12 or 14, I saw a chair. I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's a chair. We haven't seen chairs for – we haven't been able to sit down to eat for, like, a week. This is crazy. We're sitting in chairs. You know I mean? You're in the middle of nowhere, but it was horrible. I mean, luckily they have – in the bivouac, which is the camp you stay at every night in Dakar, they have pasta. And uh, you can eat pasta at, at night and pasta in the morning. Uh, like, they're, they're ah, just everything's it's no good. Like, they're eggs in the morning, like, it's just runny eggs. Like, they have been, like, cooked just a little bit. And they're like, Ugh. nah, I'm, I'm going to pass. I don't eat, I don't like scrambled eggs now because of, because oh, of oh, that. Wow. It's not good. Um, it got a little bit better, better when they moved to South America because the locals would cook some steak, which is an amazing steak, but it's still not that great. And I always, they ended up always giving me the, the runs. So I'd stick to pasta and, and pasta in the morning, pasta at night, and uh, huh. some protein drinks. So it wasn't, it's, in Africa, it wasn't very good. And, and I thought maybe it'd be a little better in Saudi Arabia this year, and it still wasn't that good. <laughs> so. I know I saw a little video of, of Ricky Brabick. I don't know if it was on his Snapchat or somewhere, but like they were serving like a whole horse head or a camel head or. Yeah. Yeah, I took some pictures too. I just, uh, yeah, it's it's not that good. I don't know. And I remember in Africa they like served like a whole fish like on a plate. Like they just said cooked it or something on a fire and just gave you like the whole fish. Like they barely even like gutted it. They didn't even. I was like, nah, so grab no, a I'm fork out. and yeah, pick at it. Yeah, yeah. You so, don't want to rock the boat on game. No, nah, yeah, you don't, don't want to yeah. be sick. So pasta it was. I don't know. Those oysters work for Joe Amy down in Baja. <laughs> hey, that's different. Baja's good. Yeah. Baja's got good food. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I, I don't know. I just wanted to touch on that yeah. for some reason. That's a little off topic, but uh, so is is that kind of where your bike career? I mean, you're still riding. You're still doing some racing, um, mint four hundred stuff like that. Um, what? How was your transition from bikes to cars? So we talked about those few injuries I had in Mexico, and I had a couple other injuries after that. Um, it's just hard, you know. We, uh, me and my wife, were uh, trying to have kids. We had, I had a kid, and hard to have insurance. Try to make money and pay the bills, and then you get hurt, and then you don't show up to a race, so you're not getting paid for that race, and then you have medical bills. You can't. It's it's tough. Which a lot of a lot of people who are probably listening are probably done. Probably try to do the same thing. Uh, it was tough. I had. I had some bad injuries and it was like seemed like I could never get back when I got back from my mission did that I never got like it seemed like every race I show up I knew I was gonna get tired you know what I mean like mentally like I can maybe run the pace of these guys but I know I can't do it for two hours like in a works race and I'm gonna get tired I'm just gonna go into survival mode you know what I mean and that's not mm-hmm. that's not a way to race and I had those like three or four injuries in a row that I felt like I just finally get back to speed finally get my stamina up and then bam I'd have another one I remember I went to Washougal works race me and Russ Pearson drove up there ourselves and in his box fan and there was a little rhythm section like you could double in and triple out or triple in and double out and it was faster to triple in and we done the I did the unclassified in the morning and the night they prepped the track and me and Ryan Hughes pulled the whole shot and we went to go into it and they built the jump the takeoff way way bigger and we went to triple in and we both cased the quad and wow. I shattered yeah. both my ankles and he broke his humerus oh, and okay. uh 
that was a long one. My ankles still kill me. And then I think the one, finally one that was the straw on the camel's back. I just, it was Mother's Day up in uh, Utah, the Heron Hound. Uh, we'd already prepped my bike for the ISD. It was me, Dave Pearson, Kirk Caselli, and I can't remember, Russell Bobbitt maybe we were gonna do it, the ISDE junior team. And mm -hmm. I was stoked, we just got my, Mike Chavez, I just built my KTM for ISDE, and we're getting ready to ship it over. And Kurt's dad, Rich Caselli, was all excited. And I had a bad feeling at the beginning of the race. Like racing, it's funny how mental it is, you know what I mean? I just had yeah. a bad feeling at the beginning of the race, and the, the start was postponed. We sat there for like 40 minutes, waiting for the, the minis to get back in. Some got lost. Anyway, I crashed there, and I ended up on the bomb run, hitting a ditch. And uh, that I got the dust, had to go out of my spot that I'd walked, hit a ditch. I remember landing on my elbow and I put my humerus bro through my scapula and shattered my scapula. Oh, wow. So my scapula is a plate and eight screws. But anyway, that was how my, my mom and dad were there. I looked at my dad and I said, I'm done. That's it. It's over. So from that point, uh, just being the adrenaline junkie and desert people that we are, I just trying to get work my way into four wheels. I knew that's what I wanted to do. I had met Robbie that first year in Dakar. He was one of the Americans that went. He went for Red Bull Volkswagen. Uh, their factory effort and just kind of kept in touch with him. Andy Grider was doing a little bit of navigating for him and uh, ended up trying to slide into that. I never wanted to navigate. No one wants to navigate, you know what I mean? I wanted to drive. So I built my own truck, which is probably the second biggest mistake of my entire life. I spent my, seriously, I spent my entire life savings on building a stupid race truck. Um, and it was 2008, 2009, which is when the economy was bad. So uh, I started building it and Ford had this big program and you could actually maybe break even, maybe make a little money, have a championship bonus and win bonuses. And I was like, okay, if I can do all this and this, that I can maybe break even and make a little. And no, it ended up costing way more than I thought. And then 2009 is when Ford, obviously they economy, that's when everything crashed and Ford cut that championship bonus, which it was like 20 grand. And um, you won that championship, right? Yeah, in the class yeah, seven? Yeah, class 7300, like stock Ford Ranger yeah. class. So I won that championship 2009 and won the championship 2010. But like I said, Ford was offered like a $20,000 championship bonus. It was like $10,000 per win. And then finally that 2009 when we started it, they cut the championship bonus and it went to $4,000 per win. And it's just a tough time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just everything, yeah. the economy and racing, as we, as we know, racing is not super essential. So it was just a bad time. So, but, so that was my foray into building my own truck. But I started getting to do the navigating thing and ended up working for a guy named Ron Bailey in Las Vegas. Um, and we we did a race that started in St. Petersburg, Russia and went all the way to Beijing, China. And that was like my first big rally in a car and then navigating it. Uh, you, you, you can tell stories forever. That race was insane if you think about it. So how did transitioning to navigating in a car, I mean, obviously your desert racing skills come into play, but I mean, was it a pretty, pretty easy transition or what was that like? Um, I think anyone who races bikes has that being able to read the terrain, you know what I mean? It's kind of like life or death. If you don't read the terrain, you're going to crash. And so I think that always the saying is with age comes a cage. And I think navigating with being a bike guy, as you guys know, is, uh, kind of just kind of comes natural. I don't get car sick. <laughs> so what, what was the hardest part? Was it communicating what you, you know, what you were seeing to the driver or was it, um, was that pretty easy? No, the hardest part, to be honest, is trying to figure out the pace. I didn't really know it, the, how fast, you know what I mean? Yeah. How fast you could really go. I mean, those things like, 
I remember the first time I'm like, oh, don't slow down. Oh, oh, we're okay. That was fine. Oh, slow down. We're going to flat. No, I hit that rocket going 110 miles an hour. I'm not going to get flat. Well, on a motorcycle, I could have flat, you know, or, or dead or a river. Yeah, or you can yeah. end up. Yeah, so yeah. just figuring out the pace. Uh, and there's so much to learn. Like mm-hmm. the bikes, it is pretty hard to prep a bike, but try prepping a trophy truck or a car. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so when I worked that Ron Bailey, that was a good learning experience. Is I, I helped, I was like the team manager. He hired me as my full-time job. We built a car. It was a Jimco mid-engine, so we built it from the ground up or rebuilt it. And I uh, just had to learn kind of everything from the beginning. It was a good experience. That was just a crazy time in life, too. I mean, we think of, I, we flew everything. We flew the race car. We shipped everything. I was kind of in charge of all that, which I had no clue how to do all that. Uh-huh. Shipped it to La Havre, France. I lived in France for like a month while we got ready for the rally. From France, we took a... Everyone that was going to race the Transorient, or is what it was called, we all kind of carpooled. We drove all the way through France, through Belgium, through Germany, got on a ferry in Rostock, Germany, with all the race equipment, ferried to Finland, got to Finland, crossed into Russia at Finland, which is just crazy. I mean, I'm still young, and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a team manager trying to be in charge of everyone and passports and, and money. and Yeah, that's a lot of responsibility yeah, and a lot of equipment, a lot of money. A lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hmm. but, yeah. Wow. So, I have a question from a listener, Blake Monk. He said, obviously asked, when you were racing with Robbie Gordon, uh, how crazy of a ride was it with Robbie going down the sand dunes into car going over 120 miles per hour? <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, I ended up getting together with Robbie. And I think I navigated for him for eight years. Him and I become good friends. But uh, at first, it was crazy. That was my first, like, Wow this pace we can go this fast you know what i mean it's insane but the more i got to ride with robbie I realized he's actually a smooth driver like he's probably one of the smoothest like if you look at like uh data and stuff like his throttle control he gets like the best fuel miles get per gallon out of anybody he's actually a super smooth driver it's just when he sees people or there's a helicopter he's gonna wick it up so <laughs> everyone asks me how crazy he's super fast but he's like a good driver like i trust him completely i mean obviously i him and I have done six deck cars together, so wow. we just our seat time together is just, and I don't know how many Baja plus your races. Baja time, yeah, plus yeah. all the Baja races and and everything. It's just uh, I, he's crazy, but he's super in control. Like his his car control is unbelievable. So like, probably one of the worst things about navigating is trying to like you're just you're just <laughs> the dummy next to the guy who's in charge of everything. You know what I mean? Yeah, you can maybe reach over and switch the battery switch and shut everything off, but you're just along for the ride, really, and hopefully he's listening to you. But uh, uh, Robbie and I built a good relationship, and uh, he trusted me, I trusted him, and it was uh, he just kind of navigated. So I, I trusted him. He went, he always told my, my mom and dad, he's like, don't worry, Kellen's fine. I don't love anyone more than myself, and I'm not going to do anything to hurt myself, so you're okay. <laughs> so, I always feel comfortable with him. But, uh, yeah, he, and there's sometimes, you know, a couple times in the ball races where he, we knew we were down on time, and he had to pick it up, and it was actually, to be honest with you, just a, kind of a, pretty awesome just to sit next to it and watch, like, holy cow. Kind of a wild ride. I had no idea we could go around that turn that fast, you know what I mean? Just mm, stuff like right. that. So, so as a navigator... Do you have like a book in front of you and you're calling off left here, turn here, watch that bump? Give me a couple seconds of your calls. So it's different with Baja. So like Baja, we go down and you can pre-run. So you can pre-run and you can put notes in the GPS. Um, 
we'll spend two weeks and that like GPS has everything. I've, I've marked every rock. I know every time we need to check up. I know when we can stay on the gas. It's kind of totally different. So on a race day, you're just relaying the information that you're reading that you've been put into the GPS after pre-running. Um, yeah. yeah, 20, I think it was 2014. We were down there, uh, El Rosario. I bumped into Kellen. I was down there with Dave. We were pre-running and uh, we ended up having two people in the pickup that day, me and Big Tickets, and um, Kellen offered for me to jump in for about 200 miles with Robbie and and Kellen down there. So I got to see it firsthand. Um, What an experience that was. I mean, that was a a dream come true to just get to ride in a trophy truck, you know, and and this was their pre-runner, but it was a full-spec trophy truck. And and, uh, Was it the truck or the buggy? It was the truck. It was the the, the enclosed cab. So it was Robbie, Black. basically Robbie took his old trophy truck, yep, turned it in, it in half, yep. put a cab on it, and then put so it away. It was yeah. basically the trophy Yeah, it truck. was, yeah. So, I mean, how many good people just say pre-runners for Robbie? <laughs> yeah, 200 miles down Baja, Baja Peninsula with Kellen and Robbie, and just wa- just sitting in the backseat watching these guys work was pretty, pretty awesome to see. I mean, he pushed it through, you know, some three, four-foot whoops at 60, 70 miles an hour, and it, it I mean, the truck's just impressive. Mm. I think at one point, uh, I was pretty nervous we went. We dropped off like a ten foot drop. I'm thinking, okay, he's gonna check up and roll off this thing. He did never lift, never lifted, and just <laughs> sailed off it. And I'm sitting back in the back. I'm like thinking I'm gonna <laughs> knock my head off the ceiling, and that thing landed and just soaked it up and kept going. Um, so yeah, very cool, yeah, cool I experience. That. that was pretty. That was how funny. many people that said they pre-ran whole sections? Well, and we didn't have any issues, right? It was actually a good pre-run. No, clean, yeah, clean <laughs> so day. Yeah, I mean, it got a little bit cold. I think I remember I left my sweater in in the pickup truck and. It got cold that night, but uh, the truck yeah. ran good. No issues, yeah. yeah it was yeah, fun. Yeah, I remember that. Was, that was cool. Good time. Yeah, and you, it, Robbie's going to be a good driver. You know? he's just yeah, and super cool. I mean, you know, we, we helped him work on the truck for a minute, um, something with the air cleaner or something. I can't remember. But, uh, I mean, yeah, he was super, super cool and way good driver, phenomenal hmm. driver. So that's is navigating in the car different completely different totally different you have no idea where you're going so uh, your head's into the book you have your road book which has your notations and everything's off the odometer so you're trying to look at the notation which some guy tried to draw their interpretation of what the natural terrain looks like and they're trying to point you which way to go and does everybody get issued that same book yes so there's no orange and black arrows out there to follow. No, no, no. <laughs> a lot of times there's not even a track to follow. You know, sometimes you got some bike tracks in front of you, but you don't always follow those as well. So crazy. Yeah, literally you're in the middle of nowhere, and at that point you're off of a cap heading, which is a compass heading. So you're just you're at a cap heading of 120 for the next 40 kilometers. So I mean, you're trying to the driver, which. Robbie's kind of the worst because he never likes to follow tracks. He likes to go off on his own and do his own thing. And you're trying to stay on the cap heading, but obviously you can't stay straight because you can't go straight over a dune in a car like a bike's can. So he's going left, and I'm trying to get him back right. And it, it's, it throws a whole nother spin on racing. Like it's, you could charge, charge, charge for, you know, like half a day, and then you make a mistake navigating, and you just lost 10 minutes. Or vice versa, you could be trying to catch people all day long, and all of a sudden you see them coming kind of backwards, and you're like, Oh, we just made up 20 minutes on these guys and they're lost. They've been here for 20 minutes looking for the right way to go. If we find the right way to go, we just made up 20 minutes on these guys. Mm-hmm. It just, it throws a whole nother aspect. Have you race. ever got into like a little argument trying to navigate with your driver? Like, no, I told you this way or. I mean, <laughs> on there, there's. Good question. Now there's, 
uh, there's video, and um, there's a lot of people giving me a hard time about this, but uh, there's the a video helmet. of Robbie and I, yeah, throwing his helmet yeah, yeah, at the me. Helmet video. <laughs> and like, I just catch the helmet. If you haven't seen it, you can look it up on YouTube. I think it's still on there, but long. I won't say that again, but uh, <laughs> uh, basically, Robbie and I, first day, we got stuck on a dune. He went to throw it reverse, blue reverse gear, which reverse gear is super touchy on all the all the race cars. Uh, got stuck, couldn't get couldn't get out. Lost like we're on day one of a race. He just spent you know four million dollars to get to as far as prep all year and testing, and it's just insane. On day one, you lose thirty forty minutes, and on top of it, I lost these. I got out to get us unstuck. And there's these carbon fiber, these carbon Kevlar uh, ramps that we used, like basically sand ramps, to get us unstuck. Well, we hadn't trimmed the carbon on the body just right, and I couldn't get him locked back in. Mm. After and obviously, as soon as you get unstuck, he wants to go because we've already lost time. So I'm trying to get the sand ramps back in place and get him secured in place, and if the strap wouldn't go, and he he's ready to go, you know, like let's go, let's go. So I'm trying to hop in, and anyway, we lost the sand ramps. So at the end of the into the stage we've lost the day one we've already oh. lost 40 minutes or whatever mm. obviously he's hot you know what i mean and then i tell him that the sand ramps aren't there and he just loses it that's our only ones are going to be screwed for us rally <laughs> we forgot that uh the organization or nbc had put a camera inside and he's just bleep 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 <laughs> then he picks up his helmet and throws it but the funny thing is if you look at the video like i, I instinctively just catch it like like this and, like, like no, the side catch his yeah. helmet yeah but uh Everyone gave me a hard time about that. But, I mean, really think about it. I mean, yeah, okay, people see that. I'm like, ah, he's just, you know, he's like a cannon. No, we just spent a year prepping. Literally, we, we flew the cars down there. Spent how much time and money to get there on day one? Yeah, you're going to be pissed. Yeah, yeah and he's competitive. One of the yeah, most competitive guys out there. He, he wants to win. Yeah, I mean, he has to win. For him, it, yeah. his life depends on it. You know what I mean? Right, right. And so... Uh, yeah, you're gonna be mad. He apologized a little bit later, but I mean, he wants to win. You know what I mean? And so do I. Yeah, you know I mean? absolutely. So I that I went out and I did like the whole last like 15 miles of that section looking for those sand ramps. Here we are, day one on that car. I didn't take any sunscreen or anything. I just went out. I borrowed some locals foiler, and I'm out there in the sand looking for these sand ramps because I knew where we got stuck to where we finished. I get sunburned on day one. I'm dehydrated, like sunburned like crazy bad. I was out there for like two hours looking for the sand ramps, and long story short, some locals had picked him up and. We got it back. <laughs> cool, cool. But yeah, as people see, I was that. lucky. Yeah. So, are you still in trucks, navigating, or have you moved to something else, side by sides or something? Or uh, I still, I still navigating. Um, I, obviously, like I said, no one wants to navigate. But I drove for a couple of years. Uh, the RPM team, uh, RPM off road. Justin Matney. I drove for him. Uh, he got his back hurt one year. He was sick and. Uh, Drove for a little bit and won a class one championship uh, driving for them. Uh, that's probably, to be honest with you, that's uh, Baja 1000, uh, Ricky Johnson, seven time Supercross champion, uh, someone who I idolize and look up to. Him and I raced the class one with Justin. He raced, uh, Ricky drove the first 450 miles to Bay of LA, mm -hmm. and I got in and drove from Bay of LA to the finish in La Paz, like 830 miles. And Justin got in right at the finish. He had a, just had back surgery. Mm. That's probably like a, I mean, I don't know what you say, like a dream come true for me is to race with the Ricky Johnson and then yeah. have him at the finish say, hey, good job, man. You, you know what I mean? And to drive a trophy truck in Baja 1000, I was definitely on my, uh, <laughs> one of my, yeah, that's cool. So, but it's hard. Everyone wants to drive, and I've been able to make some money navigating. And so I still navigate, still navigate trucks 
for all the stuff here in the States. Um, not to sound conceited or whatever, but I think last year with my work schedule, uh, we just did taxes and stuff. I was gone 119 days racing, testing, or traveling for for Best in Desert Sport. And then last year I did a lot of the rallies. So the whole rally series, the Dakar, they have a rally series. I did a lot with AJ Jones in a side-by-side. Nice. Yeah, and that's on top of your normal job. And, I mean, you're, my, yeah, you're working for it. Normal job and, and trying to be a dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. It, was, it, was, it was almost too much last year. Yeah, yeah. it's hard. It is. It's just tough, man. Well, um, I'm going to take a break here in a little bit, but one quick question. This is from another listener or from Ashley. What is your dream program? If you were to create your own program, vehicle, gear, race location, set up, what, what would the dream program be? Uh, that's a good question. I think I'd have two programs. I'd have a bike program, obviously, uh, and I'd have a trailer truck program. <laughs> what kind of budget are we talking about here? Well, let's talk your bike program. This is a dirt biker podcast. So let's, what's your dream dirt bike program? Uh, I'd love to have an off-road program. And I was super fortunate to have a couple guys that helped me. Like, it's a tough, even now, I mean... There's not, I was fortunate enough when I was racing bikes that it was kind of like, I wouldn't say the heyday, but there was a lot of opportunities as far as like factory rides available. I mean, you show up to a works race, you had factory Suzuki, Mike Kodrowski, Nathan Woods, you had factory Yamaha, Tate Davis, you had factory KTM, you had Kawasaki, Destry Abbott. There was, you know, you had plenty of factory rides. Right now, I feel, I feel sorry for guys that it's, there's not that much as far as off-road goes. Yeah, when you look at off-road, that was kind of the heydays of, right. of support. And I mean, the, the, you know, the riders list was just stacked. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. I wasn't winning any championship or anything. You had a lot of other people that were winning the championships. I wasn't, I was, I mean, I'll be honest. I was maybe like a, I'm for sure a top 10 guy. You know what I mean? Here now I was maybe top five. But I wasn't lighting the world on fire. But I had a, a KTM factory ride. And I was pretty fortunate. Nowadays, I mean, you got maybe one or two of the top guys have, are making money mm-hmm. for the factory ride. So to answer the question, I, I would love to, be like a Tracy Godfrey or something like that that helped me out that Jeff Price that were able to have like the like Jeff Price had some of the nicest looking bikes he spent super good money on his bikes he had work suspension works everything like super trick titanium bolts and everything on an off-road bike I'd love to do that and pick up some humble you know younger kids uh, that are working hard that are trying to make it you know what I mean it's 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 tough nowadays so that would be my ultimate setup is have some factory, some factory backing, have a good team where we have some of the best parts, uh, have a training facility. I really love to maybe have someday have like a training facility is, uh, and teach people. It's not only that, cause I kind of, like I talked about my dad didn't really know, but kind of teach people the whole, yeah, there's the whole riding part, but there's like, that's maybe one, I don't know, 30% of it. You know what I mean? Right. There's the whole mental part. There's the whole physical fitness part. Then there's the whole part of social media and sponsors and giving. There's so many cool sponsors. I mean, to this day, most of the guys that sponsor me on bikes, I still keep in touch with. They're just mm-hmm. super good guys. Right. And Love. they sponsor you for a reason. You want to make sure that they're getting their bang for their buck and just helping people out. With, and not that I really know, but just helping people out with that. That would be my ultimate setup is to help 
young up and comers who are trying to do the same thing that I was doing that might not have the opportunities that I that I had. Cool. One more quick question before we take a break. This comes from my brother Brian. He lives in Georgia. When do you prefer a two-stroke, and when do you prefer a four-stroke? <laughs> uh, it's funny because when I rode for KTM, we had both. They had the KTM. I always had a KTM three hundred and I had a KTM five twenty-five, and we do tests there at the track, motocross track in Alamo, which is hard packed, slippery, dry <laughs> dirt. You think, okay, the four strokes are good. For some reason, I was always faster on the two stroke, like two seconds. I knew it was something <laughs> weird, but you hop on a two stroke for, I think it depends. If you're in the desert, West Coast, I want a four stroke. Even motocross, I want a four stroke. Four strokes nowadays are amazing. Fuel yeah. injection, the motor, the torque, the power curve, how light they are, four strokes are amazing. Yeah, uh, impressive. I think if I was doing like tight technical, like Takati hair scrambles or something back east, or like a, maybe even like a ISD qualifier in, in Idaho City or something like that, I'd go with the two stroke where traction's good. Maybe in Georgia where the nice red dirt and traction's mm -hmm. prime, I'd do a two stroke. Uh, I haven't even ridden, I want to ride one of the new fuel injected KTM or Husky two strokes. I hear they're pretty fun. Yeah, I hear the TPI is pretty good. Hmm. I, I just got a new two-stroke Yamaha, the 250X. So That's good, huh? Yeah, I haven't been on a two-stroke in probably 12 years, and like I, I'm liking it. <laughs> Did good last weekend up in the trees. Yeah, yeah for me, the, the fun factor of a two-stroke, you know, if I'm out <clears throat> play riding, out wanting to have fun, just hop on a two-stroke and hear that thing zing, you know, but... Um, then, then I get on a four stroke and, you know, racing and stuff like that. Having that extra power up the sand washes and that kind of thing is nice. Yeah. The new four strokes are pretty impressive. I just got, you know, a 2019 KTM 450 with the fuel injection. This is my first fuel injected bike. And, uh, man, it's just impressive how far the four strokes have come. Yeah. Pretty Amazing. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So fun to ride. Yeah. Well, cool. I think, uh, let's take a break. We have a voicemail or a voice message from our next guest so um take a listen to this and i know kellen knows him and there he maybe he can share a story with us about our next guest when we come back and then maybe we'll get into a little bit where kellen came from a little bit more of kellen away from the bike where where you know his story so uh let's take a little break we'll be back in a minute Hey, this is David Pearson. Hopefully I'll be on next week on the Desert Dirt Biker Show with Corndog and Eric Holt. Stay tuned for details. All right, we're back. This is Corndog. Eric sitting in with uh, Kellen Welch. Walch. Walch. <laughs> I always say it wrong. Anyways, <laughs> uh, you heard it right. Uh, Dave Pearson will be on with us our next episode. So pretty excited about that. Can't wait to hear some of the stories. We were just on break telling some stories, and uh, we almost should have put put it on record. Anyways, uh, Kellen, tell us a quick story about Dave. I, I know you guys have uh, raced together, uh, grew up together, basically a couple towns over. Um, tell us a quick teaser about Dave. Oh, Dave. Come on, bud. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, bud. Don't be a hairy. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've known, I've known Dave since we were on 80s. 
grew up racing the same thing. Him and I had some good times. Just a uh, super good friend. How she knows my wife, and uh, I yeah, can go on and on. And Dave's stories. He's a he's a hoot, man. Always a good time with Dave's there. I, I just think of one that pops in my head. We were younger, and we were going to Texas to race an ISDE qualifier in Decatur, Texas, which it was miserable. The worst, one of the worst races. So humid, and just anyway. We're on our way back, and we were over this trip. This was just driving forever, and we stopped. I think it was like the Grand Canyon or somewhere close to the Grand Canyon. And I'm like, all right, let's stretch our legs. And we go out. There's like a little walking bridge. I can walk like over it. It's not, it wasn't the Grand Canyon. It was like one of those big old canyons the road goes across, and it has like a little walking bridge you walk out, and uh -huh. you can look down and see the water. And then there's signs everywhere that say, don't, don't throw anything off the bridge or anything like that, or... I uh, mean, I shouldn't say this. Maybe I get Dave arrested. <laughs> anyway, I'm already all tired from a road trip. We're just sitting there, and I walk. We walk out onto the bridge, and all of a sudden, you see Dave. He's walking with this big old rock that you can't even you can't even carry, buddy. Waddles out to the middle of the bridge and hucks it over. And I'm like, oh, we're gonna kill somebody. We're gonna go to jail. What's going on here? And Dave's like, oh, it's gonna be so awesome. We watch the rock hit the water, just explode, just echoes in the canyon. I'm like. Oh my gosh. That's just Dave, man. He's yeah. like, oh, that was awesome. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? It's like, uh, yeah, I'm probably, probably going to be in trouble after that one. But <laughs> that's, that's just Dave, man. He's always having fun. Uh, road trip, we played Mile Marker and a bunch of games on the road trip. And just always a good time with Dave. So. What the heck is Mile Marker? And then ask Dave. Ask Dave ask what is, Dave. ask Dave what, uh, about his first experience in Mexico. I'm sure that'll come up. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> his his um, uncle and cousins have told me i've been working with them and they told me to ask him that i think i know what you're talking about yep definitely asking that <laughs> <clears throat> um i have an experience with dave i remember cruising to a race we're in a truck loaded down and i don't think dave was heading to the race maybe he was we were heading up here to Caliani, and uh all of a sudden there's this truck on my butt and we're doing 70 80 miles an hour down the highway yeah, he passed us. Not on the road. He went through the desert. Didn't even let up. <laughs> yep. And I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> so that's one of my Dave stories. Yeah, that's Dave. <laughs> Anyways, let's get back to Kellen. Uh, so we're excited about having Dave next week. We're excited about Kellen tonight. So I think we've talked, just hit on a little bit of your racing career. Let's uh, hit a little bit on who Kellen is. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to say let's get personal, but let's get personal. <laughs> no. Uh, I just grew up in Alamo. Uh, regular kid, just uh, played sports, played high school sports, loved racing. And, you know, I see it. Uh, got married, long story short, I have kids, got four girls. I got three girls and a boy, so four kids, and I see a lot of my myself and my little boy. You know, he just he loves motorcycles too. It's I was wondering like, ah, am I gonna have my boy race or do I really want to get into this? I mean, I know how expensive it is, and if he does want to race, be competitive. I know what yeah, it's 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 a lot of work, <laughs> especially for the the dad. You know, and, uh, so I'm not yeah. I was always I'm not sure if I want to get him into this, but uh, he eats sleeps and dreams about racing and bikes yeah that's all he does all day long is he watches youtube videos and wants to that's pretty he loves cool. it it is cool so i see a lot of myself in, in in him and i think i i was that way when i was little i just loved motorcycles you know what i mean when i was a dad when you see that you can't like hold him back and 
nah, nah. If he wants to race, I'll, I'll you know, as a dad, I'll, right. I'll support him 100%. And you can't force your kid to do it. I mean, if your kid wanted to be a... Bull rider or whatever. A bull rider, you're going to support that. Right. Yeah. Yep. For sure. You can't hold him back. He, yeah. If he doesn't want to race, and it's a fine line. Like, I talked to a bunch of uh, firemen and, and a lot of dads who have kids and... Okay, so like one day I'll see him at the track and he's pushing and going fast. I'm like, all right, yeah, bud. Couldn't table talk. Good job. Then the next day he's just like cruising. I'm like, what, what are you what doing? Happened? Jump the jump. <laughs> what are you, you know? It's like, well, as a dad, you, not, you can't you can't get on your kids. You know what I mean? You're right. And I know a couple of dads have got on their kids and pushing and pushing them. And they've crashed and gotten concussions and, and get burned out. And the kids get over, don't want to do it. You saw it. Yeah, I just want to have fun. And, and if he's got some talent, and I'll support him if that's what he wants to do. But. Uh, he loves it. He he breathes and sleeps it, and he just. So I see a lot of myself in him as a little kid, but uh, yeah, just grew up in Alamo and and had a high school sweetheart. Had my wife Millie. Uh, she, we dated all through high school. Only person I've ever really kissed or anything like that. Kind of boring and. Oh, that's good. It's hard. <laughs> she, it's hard to say these these days. Uh, we dated all through high school. She as. And when you go on your mission for your church at LDS, you go on a mission for two years, you can't, and your wife or your girlfriend at the time will go to college, you know what I mean? You can't be married and go on a mission, but your girlfriend will go to college, and of course, we call it a John Deere letter. You usually get a John Deere letter from your girlfriend saying, hey, I found this other guy in college, and I'm getting married. Here's the invitation to your, to my wedding. But uh, my dad always says, because she's had to put up with a lot with me racing and everything, she's, he says, she had two years to upgrade, and she didn't. So uh, <laughs> she waited, you know, she waited two years for me while I was on my mission. And, That's awesome. And uh, I came back and uh, we ended up getting married and waited all those years to, you know, to get married and have kids. And that was a big goal of mine as well. And it was tough racing is at that point, my wife had goals of starting a family and having kids. And I did too, obviously, but I wanted to race and it was, it's just, tough to do you know what super I mean? hard yeah. and even like talking about now just so busy with the regular job and and work and then racing and pre-running and trying to do paybacks for the fire department and it's what uh, is your regular job now so yeah i'm very fortunate to have be a fireman in vegas super super lucky great job one of the best jobs there is just uh schedule allows me to keep racing and you can take some time off and have you know seven or eight days in a row off and you can do shift trades which i do a lot of shift trades to make the races and you got to pay them back so then my family's paying you know kind of suffering on the other end so uh it's it's tough and my wife does a lot of stuff and she's a trooper but you know i'm getting to that point where you know i need to be i need to be a dad and i think that's probably some uh, you guys probably agree that's probably after this life's over it's not really gonna matter how many races you've done or really what you know races how many races you've won or whatever it's uh, family's going to be your most important and how you raised your kids and are they productive in society and so I need to I got a lot to work on in that area I think that's some of my next goals is to uh, just really focus on being a better dad and paying attention to my kids and taking good care of my girls so that when I'm old and can't move because all my injuries that they'll take care of me and, and yeah, yeah so no that's very respectable yeah that's yeah. very cool I, I know I think I told you earlier today, but if I was to do it all over again, I, I would want to be a firefighter. And uh, I'm not, but I look up to you guys that are. I mean, you're both in the medical field. 
firefighter medical, you know, so it's pretty cool. I, I have a lot of friends that are, that do that. Uh, it is. Yeah, it, it, really if cool. anyone's thinking about, you know, young kids are racing and, and thinking about maybe a career opportunity, if they get to that point, a fireman's a great job. If anyone has any questions or anything or looking to get hired or what direction they should go, please hit me up. Uh, I'd be more than happy to, to work with you and help you. And, and it's a great job. It's, it's, it really is. It's, it, it, for us who race, we have that adrenaline. You, racing brings like a, a, a wide variety, a group of people together, and we all have common interests. I mean, think about it. Like, someone goes out, has to buy a motorcycle, has to buy the, buy the gear, has to go ride and practice, has to pay for entropy, and then decides to come and race. I mean, it's, it takes a different person to, to race, and it all mm -hmm. brings us together. We all have that same, you know, adrenaline rush that we need, and, and, and it just becomes part of it. The fire department's kind of the same way. I mean, Every medical call is different. You never know what you're going to get. You run into car accidents. Uh, you run a lot of medical calls that aren't fun. Uh, but you got, you know, fires and everything running into a burning building. And, and it, it's a rush. And it's a lot of the same group of people that have that high adrenaline. And the people that always want to kind of improve themselves and be better. And it's a, it's a good group of, of people. And it's a unique atmosphere where you live with people 24 hours a day. So I eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and we sleep, you know, right next to each other. You're, it's your second family. It's right. really, really unique, and it, you, you do. It really is like your second family. You're with those people just as much as you are your other family. And so uh, it's a unique atmosphere, great, great career. Um, and, and you're serving people. You're helping people in their, in their most time of need. So it's pretty rewarding. Very cool. Um, so I have one... One last question. Um, I like to ask this to all our guests, but what what's something that you've learned through all your years in desert racing that you would share with our listeners? I've said it before, but the racing desert plays such a role in the way you handle the rest of your life. You know what I mean? Uh, if that makes sense. Like, if you've conquered a desert race, what it takes, like we just talked about, going out and buying gear, bikes, practicing racing, signing up, conquering a desert race like the Baja 1000 and then you have to go to wherever your regular job is and, and you can you can almost handle anything else you know what I mean desert racing instills that into you that I mean if you've conquered some desert racing and done desert racing you can pretty much handle <laughs> the stresses of, of, of any other job or life you know what I mean um, and so that and desert racing is just like I said before our there's people that I met, you know, 20 years ago that I'm still friends with. It's just a mm -hmm. unique, it's that group of people that we're talking about. We all have that common interest. Like, there's been people that I've met in Vegas on the fire department, and I, hey, I go up and talk to this guy. And like, they're like, you know him? I'm like, yeah, he used to race. Man. We're best friends. Like, really? <laughs> you know, they wouldn't yeah, really cool. think that. But we all have that. It brings that group of people together, and it's really awesome. It's like a family, you know what I mean? And we have the same interests. And Absolutely. It's a unique set of people that we do this, you know what I mean? Yeah, we talked about that a little bit with Joe Amy on the last episode. It's just the just to raise your kids in it. It it I think it makes your kid better, a better become a better man. For sure, yeah. you, you teach them goals, or you have goals you have to work towards. You have you know what I mean it's hard work, hard work, dedication, super hard work, dedication, mental, mental focus. toughness. Yeah. yeah. And there's not another sport like off-road racing, like as far as even motorcycle, motocross racing. It's insane. 
Yeah. Yeah. You got to be peak physical condition, but it's also throws a whole mental aspect into it. And Preparation. What other, yeah. What other sport oh. also has like, oh my gosh, I just about got killed. I could have killed myself on that crash. You know what I mean? It's a mental adrenaline rush. It's, there's nothing like it. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yep. For sure. Right. Well, cool. Um, I think, well, I always like to ask also, um, what's in the future for Kellen Welch? I know you've been a lot of places, done a lot of things. Your bucket list has probably been scratched pretty much clean. Is there anything left on your bucket list? As far as racing goes, um, I don't know, we kind of mentioned it. I don't know how much longer I want to do a full, you know what I mean? It's, uh, but I, I still haven't won the bottle 1,000 overall. I've been second on the bike, been second on the truck three or four times I think I'd like to win the Bob 1000 uh, another thing that we never really hit on but something that as uh, I've been able to work with uh, Navy SEALs and training Navy SEALs I didn't really realize it before but the SEALs use side-by-sides motorcycles and they have off-road trucks uh, and I've been fortunate enough to work with some people that have the contracts that and I've been able to help you know, train those guys. So we talk about racing and it's really not that, you know, it doesn't really matter how many championships you've won or races you won, but something for me that is probably been the most rewarding thing I've gotten out of racing is being able to help those guys uh, who use their driving ability and off-road to get stuff done that actually matters. helps them. Yeah, matters actually. So you, you did go and train with the military or trained them on bikes or trucks or both uh the seals have uh bikes they have side by sides and they have multiple off-road trucks um i didn't really you think about it i mean you can throw i was told to ask you this and i totally spaced it yeah we both forgot (laughs) (laughs) glad you brought it up uh it's probably the one of the most rewarding things that i've done has come from racing to be honest with you like i said it just it actually makes a difference in real life as far as you know the United States goes it's something cool I've been a part of but and is it stuff you can talk about or is it mostly um, how, how did that how did that how did that happen did the military come to Kellen Walsh? no absolutely not <laughs> uh long story short uh Tommy Morris has uh I've known him he's the one who actually designed the Ivan Stewart trophy truck and, and helped prep it and he worked at PPI and he's just a super smart guy and he done some stuff for the military and anyway he ended up getting the contract to to train him i didn't know it but the seals use bikes and side-by-sides and off-road trucks quite a bit i think they're using more of the side-by-sides now than before uh, just because i think they're obviously having some injuries on the bikes but i think that goes back to getting them properly trained you know i mean which is kind of part of the part of you know our job uh ricky johnson did it for a little while larry roser's done it um, and it, it is just to be able to help those guys. No, I didn't realize it. Those they're busy. Like we don't have a clue of what's going on, and we don't really see it. And we might hear of like one or two things, but they're busy. Like it's crazy. There, there's a lot going on in the world that we don't even know yeah. about. I I actually joined the Navy to be a SEAL, and <laughs> I got halfway through boot camp, and they told me I couldn't be one because I'm colorblind. The recruiter told me that it would be no problem. Just he signed a waiver, and 
Oh, they'll let you do it, basically, to get me to join. So I didn't get to go even to Bud's training or anything, but that would have been cool. Yeah, I mean, those guys are amazing, just mm -hmm. human beings that are just things that they have to go through. But, yeah, so they use – you think about it, they throw – you can throw, you know, say eight motorcycles into the back of a helicopter. Most of their stuff's done at night. They can unload or even – parachute the bikes out the back of the helicopter, they jump out or whatever, land, go do their thing, uh, use the bikes. I mean, you, you know how versatile bikes are. You can go almost anywhere on a bike, especially mm -hmm. if you're properly trained. And, and pretty you get quick. there quick. Yep. Yeah. Right. A lot quicker than everyone else. Uh, so then they, they have to just discard the bike or leave it behind. It's, you know, seven or eight grand. It's no big deal. And their, their scuba gear is like 20 grand or something, a lot more than a bike. You know what I mean? Right. So, right. I've been a big proponent of bikes, and I hope, like, you know, it helped them see the, the benefit in it. I've been in a couple, training in a couple of different places with them, and it's pretty cool to, we had one time we were up at, they call it Area 52 of Salt Lake, but we were training, and, and the head guy was like, mm, he wasn't too keen on the bikes. And, and the side-by-sides are pretty versatile as well. I mean, they throw four side-by-sides in, in a helicopter, and they can throw them out the back as well, and parachute, and land, and hop on the side-by-side. And carry extra people or carry if they have to take someone at the side by side or whatever it's pretty useful um, but uh, it, just we were up there and the guy was like no nah, we're not gonna do much bike training i had gone up there thinking that i was gonna do a lot of bike training and uh, we're gonna stick to the side by sides you know what i mean and I'm like, all right, that's, that's great. Whatever you guys want to do. And then we ended up doing like, the whole guys wanted to do like a, just a morning of bikes. And we got doing the morning of bikes and kind of find out that the head guy, one of their guys had crashed in the parking lot on a bike when they were unloading it, like, you know, years previous and broke his wrist. And the guy was kind of anti-bikes. But hmm. later on, after we'd done the training and he kind of realized like, that's the problem is our guys just didn't know how to ride them properly. And we had gone out there and there's this gnarly hill, and one of the guys is like, ah, we should climb that. And they're like, no, no one's going to make it. You guys can... And long story short, they all end up up the hill, and the guy <laughs> who was kind of anti-bikes hopped on the bike and made it up the hill. He's like, oh, my gosh. I never would have thought we could have done that. We, These things are amazing. These are a great asset. We just haven't <laughs> you know, trained on them. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Bikes are awesome. Uh, but uh, they do get hurt on them. But that, that was, you know I mean, super cool. And, uh, they end up spending a bunch of time on the side-by-sides, and they've, they've got some pretty cool trucks, uh, like off-road trucks, similar to super, like, like uh, low-vis as far as, like, it looks like a, they call it, like, a Toyota Hilux, you know, like a diesel, four-cylinder diesel Toyota, but underneath it's pretty, it's got some off-road stuff on it, and that's <laughs> kind of where Tommy Morris comes in, is he helps design all that stuff and does a lot of the R&D. We've done a lot of testing here in uh, Nevada, it looks, you know, like I said, it looks like different parts of the world than where these guys go. And so they come out here to Nevada, do a lot of the training. Uh, we've done training right out of my house in Alamo. Stayed at my shop there. Got a nice little shop there in Alamo. We stayed the night there and done training right out of out of the shop there in Alamo. And uh, it's it's something that's, yeah, it's, it's probably one of the coolest things I've been a part of as yeah, far as awesome. racing goes. So That's cool. Well, well, thank you for doing that for our military. That's that's awesome. Yeah. That, that hits kind of home to me. War veteran. <laughs> um, anyways. Um, so, yeah, I think I think down the road I like to play, do more, a lot more of that. And like I talked about a little bit more of the, not really, I don't guess you call it training side, not really 
I'm not educated in all the nutrition stuff, but uh, help kids that are coming up. And I'd like to get like a place there in Alamo and do a little, have parents can drop their kids off for a couple of days. And my wife loves to feed them and, you know, not just teach them about racing, but you just have like a good, you know, family atmosphere and, and, you know, just have, be a good example and just try to, hey, this is what racing is. It's super fun. This is how you can become better. This is a proper way to ride so that you don't get hurt as much, you know, and teach kids. And it's pretty cool seeing kids, like, what little kid doesn't want to race a motorcycle or ride a yeah. motorcycle, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I've said this before. Kids love motorcycles. Yeah, what little boy yeah. doesn't, you know what yeah. I mean? But now there's a lot of girls too, so. Can yeah. I sign up for your class? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I enjoy that. And, and I think it'd be fun. And I've done some, uh, even like some dual sport, uh, you know, classes and like a lot of guys who like the car and follow it, but have never done it, but want to do something similar to that car and, and been part of that. And like we've talked about, Alamo's a great spot to do stuff right out of. I mean, it's hundreds of miles of trails mm-hmm. here in Nevada, up through here, Caliani, Panaca. I mean, there's some awesome riding up here. So yeah, I think down the road is eventually do something like with that and, and work with the military a little bit and, and try and get the love of motorcycles out there more and people safe. Right. Cool, man. Well, you guys have anything else? Uh, it's been a great show. We could probably sit here for hours to pick your brain. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I probably bored you. Hopefully, not at hopefully all. Hopefully, everyone no. just hit the fast forward button on the first section because no. like <laughs> there's so much more that I mean, you know, I mean, just yeah, but I'm sorry. So just hit the fast forward button and hit the no. few spots that you want. <laughs> I think I think maybe we'll have you on again in the future and have part two of Kellen Welch. <laughs> no, but no, I, I I really do. I appreciate what you guys are doing. I mean, the stuff that you've done for Moran and the off road racing and desert racing in Nevada. I can't even imagine the hundreds of hours of volunteer time that you put into it and helping people and making sure the races go through it. I really, it's guys like you that actually make stuff happen that people don't even really understand. And you guys have time and effort and volunteering your own money and everything. So I appreciate, appreciate that. Appreciate what you do. And Eric is well here in the County and everything he does for off-road racing and just a good, Eric's a good guy. Yeah. I think a lot of people who race know that super nice guy and do anything for anybody. And, so appreciate you guys well, as well. Thank you, Kellen. Thanks for coming on and yeah, for fit. all your, you know, your effort to come and make a good show for our listeners. I think everybody's gonna enjoy it. So awesome. appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I've had a, a dream to go to Baja. I've never even been to Mexico, and now maybe it's expanding to Dakar. <laughs> and not so much to race. I go watch pit, do something. I don't know. Oh, and to drive ride in a truck, <laughs> which has kind of been on my bucket list since I was a young kid, besides the dirt bikes. Um, one day, maybe yeah. I'll be in Baja and somebody I know from Alamo pulls up to the, <laughs> how do you say, the gas station in Mex- Mexican or something? P-Max. Yes, P-Max. P-Max. Yep. So, I, who knows? Yep. I, my bucket list is getting bigger. It only works something out. If I get you in a truck, yeah. there's nothing like it. <laughs> yeah, for real. Anyways. All right, guys, get out and ride. Yep, be thanks. safe and uh, thanks for listening. Uh, send us uh, some questions if you got any questions for Dave Pearson at the Desert Dirt Biker. I'm sorry, I blew that one. The Desert Dirt Biker at gmail.com. There you go. There it is. Still learning that thing. So uh, have a good night, good day. Thanks for listening. <laughs> See ya.